Notice the time is 3 o'clock Central. Today is January the 18th, 2023. This is the docket for Houston, Texas. On the 3 o'clock docket, we have the jointly administered cases under case number 23-90005, Party City Hold Co. Inc. Folks, you will make your appearance this afternoon electronically. If this is new for you, if there's a very quick link on my website. It'll take you two mouse clicks in about 20 seconds to record your appearance. Um, you can do that at any time prior to the conclusion of the hearing this afternoon. First time that you speak, if you would, please state your name and who you represent. It really does give the court reporter a good point of reference in the event that a transcript request is made. Finally, we are recording this afternoon using Court Speak. We'll have the audio up on the docket shortly after the conclusion of the hearing. For those of you who are looking at the video, you will notice there are a couple of folks uh, in the courtroom. I brag on you all the time about how great you all are as a profession. Uh, they, these are law clerks uh, that came down to uh, see it for themselves. Um, so I expect your A-plus game today. Um, Finally, uh, if I did activate the hand-raising feature just because we've got over 115 participants on the line. You know you're going to be speaking. If you would give me a five-star, I'll go ahead and get you unmuted. Obviously, I'll, I'll try and pay attention to it if you change your mind. Uh, just give me a second. If I don't uh, see it, feel free to get on the video and start jumping up and down. I promise you I'll see that. Uh, all right, with that, uh, who is taking the lead this afternoon for the debtors? Connor, Ken Zeman, always Christian Wharton Garrison, post counsel for the debtors. I will be taking the lead initially. All right, thank you. Noted my partner. Boss is also on the screen. Several of my colleagues are here in the room with me, several of whom you'll get to meet uh, because they will be presenting some motions later in the agenda. But first, uh, I want to thank you, Your Honor, for making time for us today. Um, and I'd also like to thank the Office of the U.S. Trustees for making time for us during the last several days and working through uh, comments that they had to our orders. They were very uh, responsive and really appreciate their time and effort. Very Hopefully that will help uh, hearing go a little bit more smoothly. Um, very clear to me that a lot of hard work has gone into that. It doesn't go unnoticed, and I do appreciate that. Thank you, Your Honor. So, uh, Your Honor, first I understand that the uh, first two items on the agenda, the agenda is at docket uh, number 43, the first two items, um, the uh, joint administration and the designation of complex case, those two items were already entered by Your Honor? Yes, sir. So, can I ask a quick and again, it's just a normal habit. You are moving around quite a bit, and I'm losing you as you as you move. Um, if maybe we could get the microphone a little closer to you. And again, it's always hard to say, "Can you be still?" But yeah, that will help. My mother's been scolding me about this for years, Your Honor. See if I can make it work. That a little better. I think so. And again, it's perfect when you're still. It's when you start to turn and you get out of that direction that I lose you. Okay, I'm not going to move it. Fair enough. Well, well, I will do my best, and obviously please stop me if at any point in time I start to sweat. Um, Your Honor, if, if, if you would indulge us, I have some background materials that might be helpful for yourself and for others. Uh, and we have a PowerPoint. 
Certainly. Who would who would you like to have control? It says Paul Weiss presentation. That I should be able to find. All right. Uh, control has been transferred. Okay, let's see if this works. There you go. There we go. Yeah. So, Your Honor, so I set this up to answer the obvious questions, Your Honor. Who, who are we? Who are the debtors? You know, what are they? Why are we here today? And where are we going? I think, you know, hopefully through those major three topics will provide you the context that will help you evaluate the relief you're seeking. So the who, Your Honor. So the PCHI is a global leader in the celebrations industry. It is the one-stop shop for all things celebration. It includes Halloween, year-end holidays, grad, graduation events, birthdays, and many, many more special occasions. This is a company that's been around for more than 75 years, tracing its roots back to the suburbs of New York. It is what we would call a vertically integrated business. We design, manufacture, distribute, and sell at retail. And you were going to get to the fact that Party City is a big chunk of this business, but we are not just a retailer. As suggested, we operate seven manufacturing facilities and three distribution facilities. And in fact, we sell supplies a substantial majority of the goods that we actually offer in our stores. Um, we also have non-debtor entities, and we'll get to it a little chart in minutes, Your Honor, but non-debtor entities that are sourcing subsidiaries that, that help us find our supply and work with suppliers on the ground in Asia primarily, and so we've got folks located in Hong Kong. Our, our products are sold in more than 70 countries around the world. This is a business with two primary business lines. We call them retail and consumer products. Retail is the party city business as you think of it, about 825 stores in total. More than 750, maybe even 770, are company owned. We have an online presence. PartyCity.com offers both products for sale, typically more products than we offer in a given store, as well as party planning ideas. Uh, the business is easy. Uh, we are subject to big variations. The first half of the year, as you will hear, is typically our lowest, especially this first quarter, as we're investing in the business and planning for our bigger season, which is Q4. I mean, Halloween is Party City's Christmas equivalent, effectively, so a lion's share of the revenue and profit comes in Q4. Um, the retail side of the business is the bigger side of the business by far. It approximately 80% of the revenues this is a point of reference. We'll see a little bit more of this later, but we're about a $2.2 billion revenue business now. Uh, the consumer products division is really where we do our design, manufacturing, sourcing, and distribution. So here we sell to ourselves, right? And that's a big piece of it, as I said, but we also sell to party superstores. We sell to mass retailers, mass merchants, e-commerce, craft stores, and dollar stores. Um, the seven manufacturing facilities we provide a variety of specialized goods, think of balloons, we'll talk about that, but also things like pinatas. 
Uh, and this part of the business is only about 20%. They only is about 20% of our business. Now, I preview this, and I believe on the line, hopefully on the video, we have the members of management. I just wanted to highlight a few key people that you may be seeing from time to time, and certainly the people that would be key to the success of these cases. Uh, Brad Weston, our, our CEO, Sean Thompson, who's the commercial side of the business, Todd Dodenson, our chief financial officer, Denise Kulikowski is our chief human resources officer, Ian Heller, our senior vice president and general counsel, and David Olaski was appointed the chief restructuring officer of the company. David is a, uh, well, is available today as a witness. He will be a, uh, the first day definite. We'll get to that in a few. You know, some of the other players uh, going forward, Your Honor, obviously our firm, Mr. Bossy, you can see is on the line. Uh, some key people you'll hear from today include Michael Chattel and Grace Hopes. Mr. Higgins of Porter Hedges, our proposed counsel, uh, you know, Texas counsel. We're very happy to have uh, John and his firm here working with us. Uh, the Molas firm is our proposed investment banker. Adam Kyle is a tech firm today in connection with our gift financing. And as I mentioned, Alex Partners, Mr. Olofsky, is the chief restructuring officer, but a number of his colleagues will be working alongside him, assisting the company in both the business aspects and restructuring aspects. So this is a uh, simplified corporate chart, Your Honor. There is a much bigger version of this attached to Mr. Olofsky's declaration, if that's helpful for you. His declaration is on our exhibit list, which is document 26, 26-1. I guess the chart itself is 26-2. So, and this is simplified because it primarily focuses on the guarantee. Um, there are a number of non-debtors that are included on the more, I call it, yes, sophisticated or complex corporate chart. But what we've done here is we've color-coded this, and the color coding on the boxes matches the color coding of the highlight in the words, so you can see which better entities are parties to which obligation. Um, so nine of the nine of the entities, nine of the fourteen better entities, ten of which are obligated on the debt, four of which are not. Uh, nine of those are guarantors on the first lien on our first lien secured notes. Nine are also guaranteed on our unsecured debtors. We'll get to the quantum of all this debt in a moment. We have 10 guarantors under our pre-petition EBL and Philo facilities. And uh, Party City Holdings, which is outlined in purple in the middle, Party City Holdings Inc. is the borrower and, you know, under the EBL and the issuer under our pre-petition debt. So this is, you know, the, the debtors. Indebtedness, you know, funded indebtedness. At the time of filing, we had about $1.4 billion of funded debt. You know, of that, the lion's share of secure debt, maybe ABL and Pilot, about, you know, $425 million that secured a fiscal basis by current assets, i.e., inventory, receivable, and the like, secured on a junior basis on return collateral. Return collateral. Here's the floating rate notes and the fixed rate notes. Each of those issues are due in July 25, February 26. That totals about $910 million. Uh, unsecured debt, 
funded unsecured debt at the time of the filing, Your Honor, as you can see, is about $120 million or so. Now, there is another piece of the business. The anagram business is a very, very critical part of the business. It is a global market leader in soil balloons. So these are a lot of what you would think about when you think about helium balloons that have you know, their numbers, their shapes, they have you know, decorative items on them, they have uh, intellectual property on them. The company has a you know, widespread relationship with a number of content providers, including you know, movie houses or movie studios, I should say, including comics, et cetera, that they put on balloons and then sell them. Um, these are designed for celebration, parties, you know, anything that you want to have fun. Balloons make everything more fun than you think about. Um, Anagram, critical part of the business, very important to the strategy going forward. Anagram is a, is a unrestricted subsidiary from the perspective of the debt. So it was wholly owned, um, but it has its own capital structure, comprised, you can see, of about $200 million of funded debt. It's got its own ADL facility, that, and it basically is self-contained in the sense that, other than for the normal course, supply and payment for goods, and services between the two entities, between the anagram entities and the party city entities, the PCHI entities, they are otherwise separate. So now you're on concern to the, the why. <clears throat> so a lot of the story here on it does relate back to the pandemic. Obviously the pandemic was devastating for you know, for all of us in many different ways, but for businesses in particular, you know, the, the lockdowns <clears throat> basically forced store closures and made 2020 an enormous lockdown, generated a lot of losses. And during 2020, as the stores were closed, the company undertook some capital structure initiatives, the one reducing indebtedness, in fact, some of the pre-petition debt, unsecured pre-petition debt was exchanged into anagram debt on a floating rate note. And that literally was an element to survive and avoid essentially an event like this back in 2020. Uh, as business rebounded in 20, 2021, the variant surges in the latter half of the year really impacted our selling season. You recall Q4 is really important. If you think about back to the late 2021, that's exactly when the Amazon and Delta variant showed up and you know really frustrated people's uh, efforts to kind of get back to life as normal and certainly impacted the company in very short way. The fallout from the pandemic has also been, and you know, it still lingers, right? You got the, the supply chain disruptions, you know, have continued well through 21 and into 22. Healing and shortages impact the business in two ways. Back in 2019, we, we ourselves had a healing shortage. It's very difficult to sell helium balloons without healing. That impacted, you know, our own ability to sell. We rectified our supply issues. Now, healing is more expensive, which is certainly hurt profitable, but it's also a short supply. And so the, the short supply right now is really impacting a lot of anagrams customers. So sales of balloons are down, and that's obviously impacting cash flow and Inflation, we've all heard plenty about inflation, 40-year high reached back in, you know, about you know, six or seven months ago. It certainly impacted our business, both on the consumer side, the consumers cutting back a little bit, but significantly on the cost side. 
and driving interest rates while we have you know fixed rate debt, a substantial amount of our debt is fixed rate, we do have floating rate debt and rising interest rates are certainly impacted. So it's obvious the cumulative effects of all these circumstances have impacted our, our liquidity over the course of late 21 and throughout 22. So the challenges that the company was confronting, the company was not passive by any means. Management accepted the challenges and confronted and developed various initiatives to try and grow the business and modernize and streamline the business. And these included remodeling and opening of what we call the next-gen stores. You're going to hear more about that as we go through the case, I'm sure. Right now, we're up to 181, but as I mentioned, we do have over 750 owned stores. But this is a picture of a next-gen store. You can see that balloons, as we talked about, are at the center, and they are the focal point, and the stores are designed to be much more open and inviting and actually slightly smaller than the historic footprint that we that, uh, of uh, the uh, non-renovated pharmacy stores. The company is not swept by the laurels by any means constantly innovating and enhancing its product offering, and the e-commerce and delivery experience has been enhanced. In today's, you know, kind of e-commerce and delivery world, using Uber as a delivery agent, for instance, is something that's relatively new, but gives the company an advantage, especially when it comes to balloons, because balloons cannot be bought online. I mean, certainly not delivered online. They need to be delivered, you know, in real time. Um, so notwithstanding all the efforts the company has made over the course of call it 21 and 22, you know, on the heels of the pandemic, um, you know, capital did remain tight and we just were unable to attract enough additional capital to continue this transformation on an adequate basis. So late in 22, company pivoted. Right, continuing to run the business and continuing to invest in these programs, we also turned and the company retained us. And you can see um, our, uh, our, our different stakeholders also went out and retained uh, advisors and we began a series of discussions with these folks. On the EBL level, System Bachelor and BRG are advising them. The ad hoc group of bondholders retained David Polk and Lazar to help them. And, uh, Anagram debt holders have engaged no bank in Hula and Lowe's. Yeah, I'll be very clear, Your Honor. Our primary engagement during this period has been with the ad hoc group. And let me, let me tell you why. Said in the first instance, Anagram has its own capital structure. That capital structure doesn't cross the fault of the city capital structure. Anagram, we feel, is a very, very strong business. It's got liquidity to operate its business. You know, it's likely there'll be engagement at some point to deal with that indebtedness, which has about two years left on its maturity. But that is, you know, we told the stakeholders there that, you know, we'll have those conversations at the appropriate time. But in the first instance, it was important to deal with the party city indebtedness and, and address, you know, how we were going to reorganize party city. Um, based on trading values, based on, you know, kind of our observations of the business, it seemed to us, right, that the ad hoc group of first lien lenders were going to be our focus security. So initially there was outreach, you know, to that to the members of that group that we had been in a constant dialogue with. That outreach led to them engaging the advisors I mentioned on the prior page. And then we started to, you know, 
having diligence on the sessions to go survive. But really, management spent a lot of time late November and early December developing a business plan for the company on a reorganized basis. There were meetings, as I, as I know here, meetings with the advisors to the ad hoc group of lenders. We also engaged with our ABL, you know, our ABL lenders, um, as they were obviously quite interested in what our plans were going forward. Um, you know, in early January, the principals of the ad hoc bondholders themselves went under confidentiality agreement, and there's been a lot, very intense negotiation over the past two weeks to get to where we are today. Those discussions, Your Honor, they really culminated in the execution of a restructuring support agreement, which we'll talk a little bit more about, and those same ad hoc group members committed to provide 100 million in big financing. The facts by that group is going to be made available to all first thing note holders on the same economics that's being made available to you know, those holders. So where do you want to go with this? And I certainly alluded to some of it. But the RSA really contemplates and restructuring anchored around a couple of key concepts. First, the baseline assumption is that there'll be an equitization of the first thing that we obviously don't know what that equitization looks like, so there's some safeguards in terms of we'll have you know negotiation of what other treatment might be appropriate. But the hope here and the expectation is that we're going to materially lever PCHI's balance sheet and significantly reduce the business. Key element of this restructuring is to rationalize the debt portfolio. We've retained AMG Realty to handle these negotiations with some support from Alex Partners and course management. But the goal here is to eliminate burdensome leases, reduce operating expenses, and really align the portfolio with the next gen strategy. And we really intend to start this process immediately. And you know, if engagement can't be reached, or I should say if agreement can't be reached on amended lease terms, we won't be coming back to the court. You know, to reject Finally, another key element is to raise capital for a rights offering. We're going to talk a little bit about you know, the concept of a rights offering in connection with the financing, but Your Honor, many of these over the course of your tenure on the bench. But this is really going to be essential to provide us with the liquidity to continue this transformation and to run the business on a prospective basis. The RSA has milestones. What would be an RSA without milestones, Your Honor? Um, so obviously we've got our petition date, we achieved that milestone, we're very proud. Uh, we expect to get the interim order entered in the next few days, subject to your honor's consent. As I mentioned earlier in December, the company spent a lot of time working on a business plan. That business plan has gone through a bunch of refinements based on input and feedback from the ad hoc group. We expect that process to continue with a deliverable sometime before February 2021, uh, final dip order, you know, as you can see. We're on a timeline here, Your Honor, to try and get this done in 120 days. So the idea is to move this through in four months and get, you know, get the company in and out of bankruptcy as quickly as possible. So we'll be working in parallel to prepare a plan disclosure statement and, you know, come back to the court, you know, in March up with that. But the idea is as the business plan and plan negotiations are progressing, we'll be able to drop that substance into a plan disclosure statement and get it on file very quickly. And then we'll move that confirmation process along as expeditiously as we can and subject to your honors. Uh, so let me so that, that's the goal here. 
I got it. And so let me let me put this on the table now as you work your way through the various issues. And I understand you've got a lot of meetings to engage in, and you've got a lot of discussions that you need to have. I will tell you just based on what I've read, and obviously there may be another story to tell, and I'm, I'm certainly going to listen to it when those folks show up. But based upon what you filed and what I've read, I'm prepared to go at a faster pace. I understand the sensitivity to, to all of this. And so to the extent that you can get things all in a row, so to speak, I am, I am prepared to go faster than this because I understand, I, I understand the risk uh, that goes along with delay. So keep that in mind as you talk to folks. Don't think that you that once you put this out there that you have to live with this. I, I got it that you made your deal in the RSA. Obviously, I'm not a party to the RSA, and I'm telling you that I'm prepared to, I'm, I'm going to be comfortable going at a quicker pace if you can get all of this done. Your Honor, great to hear. Thank you. Really appreciate it. In management, thank you. Uh, and I'm sure there are investors there. Because it's our goal to move this as quickly as we, we can. So, you know, Your Honor, we've got a full agenda, as you know. I'm going to turn the podium over to my colleagues. I believe, um, unless you have other questions for me, I think Mr. Scheibel, uh, uh, oh, actually, one of my colleagues just reminded me. Your Honor, I think it makes sense if it's okay for you to move Mr. Olofsky's declaration uh, into evidence at this point in time. That is exhibit number one, so it's 26-1. Right. I have, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, my apologies. Yeah, he's here uh, in case there was anyone interested in cross-examination. Uh, certainly. Let me, let me ask. I have read Mr. Olofsky's declaration, again, on the docket at 11, identified in the witnesses exhibit list. You said it's 26-1. I didn't, I didn't verify that. I read exhibit 11. Uh, let me first ask, are there any objections to the admission of Mr. Orlovsky's declaration. All right, then it's admitted. Does anyone wish to cross-examine Mr. Orlovsky? Orlovsky excuse me. All right. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, sir. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honor. It's Ivan Gold from Allen Mackens. Always a privilege. Certainly, Mr. Um, Mr. Gold. Representing the land. Certainly, just so that I, I It'll be easier for us not to speak over each other. Are you able to turn your camera on? I saw you earlier, so I know you. I know you were there. How about that, Your Honor? Um, there you are. Yeah. There we are. Good afternoon. Uh, yes, sir. So, please. Good please afternoon. Proceed. Well, uh, at Your Honor's pleasure and with input from the debtors, I have some discrete questions from Mr. Orlovsky that relate to the dip. If you want to address those now, I'm happy to do it, or uh, I don't want to disrupt the debtor's agenda. There's plenty of Mr. Orlovsky's declaration that relates to other matters on the agenda, so um, I'm I'm happy to not ruin the Paul Weiss flow, uh, if, uh, if that's okay with your honor. No, Mr. Gold, that makes perfect sense, and... and uh... And let's do this. I, I assume that the, if we follow the agenda, the dip is going to come up uh, first thing. Let me go ahead and make the circle with respect to just opening comments. Um, I mean, 
I am I am assuming that there are a number of other folks uh, who want uh, to sort of give me their view of the world and how they see this occurring. So let me do that when we come back, take up the dip. Uh, Mr. Olaski, if you'll just make sure that you don't go anywhere, and then uh, Mr. Gold will uh, will give you cross-examination time, okay? Thank you again, Your Honor. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. And I know I would see, it wouldn't be a day without Mr. Scheibel having something to say. So, Mr. Scheibel, let me, let me hear your view of the world. Your Honor, uh, thank you. I, 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 appreciate, I appreciate that, that introduction. Um, Your Honor, Damian Scheibel, here with my colleagues Elliot Moskowitz, Adam Schveen, Jonah Pepiak from Davis Polk, as well as our co-counsel, Charlie Beckham and Kelly Northley from Haynes and Boone. And we are on behalf of the Ad Hoc and Holder Group today, Your Honor. The Ad Hoc Group holds, as, um, as Mr. Zeman mentioned, approximately 72% of the debtors' first lien secured notes and they have committed to backstop 100% of the debtor's $150 million debtor-in-possession financing facility so that the debtors can remain operational and pay uh, their more than 16,000 employees uh, nationwide. We, we intend to file, Your Honor, the 2019 statement, um, and we'll, we'll get that on, on file as quickly as possible. Um, the members of the note holder group have been working tirelessly with the company's management team and advisors for the past several weeks. And they were essentially starting from zero several weeks ago in terms of diligence, information, and awareness of the full extent of the situation before, uh, before, before the, the company. The ad hoc group, as currently constituted, as Mr. Zeman mentioned, started to form in November following the third quarter earnings report. Um, and um, they came together quickly and worked hard to get together a, a solution. Um, the ad hoc group, holder, ad hoc group advisors, Davis Polk and Lazard, um, restricted with the company in uh, the beginning of December and began working with management to put together what we thought would make sense. And then about two weeks ago, as Mr. Zeman mentioned, uh, the holders themselves signed up to NDAs and began working. Um, since over the past two weeks, countless calls, diligence sessions, and meetings among stakeholders trying to figure out what would make sense for this company and get something together as quickly as possible. And you have a company that was generating $400 million in EBITDA in 2018 and is now forecast to generate only $139 million in 2022. You have a number of uncertainties that need to be addressed in addition to valuing a retailer, headwinds, freight, helium, raw materials, and lackluster sales. Um, but they were able to come together to underwrite and fully backstop this $150 million dip. Um, it made it challenging, but they were able to get it done. Notwithstanding, um, nevertheless, after weeks of hard-fought negotiations, good-faith negotiations, um, we were able to reach agreement on the fundamentals of what needed to be done uh, before the court. And um, as Mr. Zeman mentioned, the noteholder group has agreed to backstop $150 million dip financing um, to provide sufficient liquidity and has agreed to an RSA, which we hope will be a blueprint for a confirmable plan heading forward. Your Honor, if I could just spend just a moment, we're going to get to the dip shortly, um, but it, this is not an easy dip to raise, and, and I think it's important to just level set a few important points. First, even though the dip, like all dips, has senior liens and claims and would be thought of as a senior facility, in many respects, this dip is actually a junior dip. It's junior to almost $400 million in ABL debt, um, over, uh, about $400 million in ABL debt and the FILO on the ABL, um, and it's it, with respect to the inventory and accounts. 
and it's structurally junior to approximately $210 million of debt that the Anagram non-debtor subsidiaries. So in reality, what these folks were doing was trying to put together a gift that was effectively junior to nearly $600 million of debt and doing it on a very, very quick timeline. Um, the two weeks that they had to get this together to be able to get the company in, get the company funded, and get the company able to make payroll um, obviously made it challenging as well. Um, notwithstanding all that, we know what Your Honor and, 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 uh, and the Southern District is looking for generally, and so this is a pretty plain vanilla dip at the end of the day. Your Honor, there's no roll-up. There's no cross-collateralization of pre-petition secured debt. The priming is 100% consensual. We're not priming the ABL um, at all, um, and we're not priming any permitted pre-petition liens or anagram debt. Um, we're only priming ourselves, priming the notes, which obviously can be done with more than 50% of the notes agreeing. There are no liens on avoidance actions. The liens on avoidance action proceeds are pushed to the final hearing. And the ad hoc group is backstopping 100% of the debt. And it's more than backstopping, Your Honor. It's important to kind of understand the way notes work. In order for folks to be able to take up their pro rata share, there has to be a DTC process. And so in many cases, as Your Honor is well aware, and I've appeared before Your Honor in a number of uh, cases like this, um, the ad hoc group would just do the dip themselves. But folks wanted to be able to make the dip ultimately pro rata, but it couldn't be done pro rata on day one. There had to be effectively more than a backstop, a pre-funding. Because the way the notes work with DTC, you have to provide a notice, then note holders who want to take part have to de-whack their notes. Don't ask me what that means. I just know that it means they have to submit their notes irrevocably, and then they're able to take part in their pro rata share in addition to having to sign the RSA, which is, which is fairly customary. Um, so the company couldn't wait for that process. And so our group is going to be funding the interim amount themselves and then effectively leaving open the option for a week, and they'll basically take, have their funded debt exposure taken down pro rata depending on uh, what other note holders want to take part in the dip. So it's more than a backstop. It's actually kind of a, I don't know, a, a front stop, I guess, um, so to speak. Um, so, so, Your Honor, all of that was done. All of that was really important, and we did it without roll-ups and cross-collateralization. It's, pre it's predicated on expeditious restructuring, and Your Honor already mentioned the milestones, and if we could move more quickly, it would be unbelievable, um, and our, our holders would support it, and our holders would work around the clock in order to make it work, because this is not a company that's going to do well staying in bankruptcy for a long period of time. Um, and the GIF and the RSA go hand in hand, and both are significant achievements that we were able to get done you know, very quickly in this, in this circumstance. So unless Your Honor has any questions for me, obviously we can talk more about the specifics of the GIF, and I believe Paul Weiss will begin that, um, but I'm happy to chat with Your Honor about the specifics of the GIF now or when we get to it. Hi, Mr. Scheibel, I very much appreciate that. As you mentioned, you've learned where my sensitivities are, and again, reading through, subject to any other arguments that folks want to make, I, I got it. It, it. You said something that really hit home. It's about as straightforward as it gets. It's it's expensive money in, in a difficult situation, but the way that it's all been put together, it, it's about as transparent as I think it could be, and I, I appreciate that effort that went into it. Um, I'll also note, I just find it interesting, because I know you never leave anything, to chances that you framed your appearance this afternoon with an airplane to your left and a change of clothes to your right. I, I'm still thinking about what that all means, but. 
I appreciate the uh, the thought that went into that. I, I, I didn't think about it, but actually, Your Honor, if you look in between them, it's every Eagle badge since the 1920s as they've uh, as they've evolved, which I got as a as an award uh, recently in Well, you know that I you know that as a fellow Eagle Scout, I find that incredibly interesting. That that's uh, that's certainly a collector's item. Thanks, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Let me ask, uh, Mr. Graff, I saw that you popped on. Is there, would you like to make some opening comments? Ah, hold on. I'm sorry, I just saw that pop up. How about that? Okay. Can you hear me okay, Your Honor? Loud and clear. Thank you, sir. Very good. I'll be very brief. For the record, Alicia Graff, Simpson Thatcher. On behalf of J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, uh, agent for the pre-petition ABL lenders, I just wanted to note, Your Honor, that the ABL lenders as a collective group are pleased to support Party City and its affiliates through this restructuring process by consenting to the use of cash collateral. I want to commend Mr. Zeman and his team and Mr. Scheibel and Mr. Schmeen on their teams for making what would otherwise have been a sort of hectic negotiation as easy as possible. I think we wound up in a place that leaves the ABL lenders feeling perfectly adequately protected. Um, and so we look forward to being supportive of the company, Your Honor, through the process and look forward to engaging with uh, all of the stakeholders, the, the debtor and the ad hoc committee, uh, as well as the focus turns to uh, the post-restructuring landscape as well in terms of uh, financing the company after we make it through the process before Your Honor. Um, that's all I have to say, Your Honor. Thank you very much for the indulgence. Mr. Graff, thank you. I the ABLs could certainly make this difficult, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate the keeping the eye on the end game. Uh, much appreciated. All right, uh, anyone else before we go back to Mr. Zyman? All right, Mr. Zyman. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's see, Mr. Novick. I'm, my apologies. Did you wish to make some comments? So, Mr. Novick, if you uh, you know what you need to do, okay? Then I will simply wait. Uh, sorry about the delay. We, we can make the comments now or we can make the comments later if there's going to be further presentations about the DIP and the RSA from the debtors. But we do have a couple of uh, very significant issues with that on behalf of Mudra Capital Partners, our uh, client who is a minority holder of senior secured debt. Um, it, totally, it seemed to be no, totally up to you. I uh, focused on it. If you want to make your comments now, it'll give me more time to think about them. If you want to wait, certainly can do that as well. Then, then why don't I go ahead now? All right, um, and then sooner rather than later. Um, we we understand the need for a fast pace here, and don't disagree with it. We understand the debtors need uh, money. To, to execute whatever it is they're going to be executing, and, and I can't disagree with that either. We understand that this dip has, uh, whether artificially or not, become the only dip in town because of the uh, senior lender's uh, ability to block other dips. But uh, rather than pick at things and, and, and who gets what claims, I, I want to focus on two issues. They're connected issues that uh, we see as big problems with the DIP and the RSA that dictate uh, the entire course of the case. 
And they are essentially the, uh, the requirement that one signs on to the RSA in order to participate in the DIP and uh, the backstop fees for the DIP, and they're related to each other, and they're kind of circular here. So this is hardly the first case where people participating in a DIP were supposed to also agree to an RSA. The issue here is that we have an RSA with enormous holes in it, one that's almost vacuous. We don't know what the treatment is for or really for anybody. It just says we're going to try to do an equitization plan on some terms in the future. We don't know what the value of the company is going to be. We don't know how much debt it's going to come out with. We don't know what treatment the unsecured creditors are get. But if you want to participate in the DIP, you have to sign on to this. And by signing on to this, you designate all responsibility uh, and waive all your rights to complain about whatever might be filled into these blanks and, and designate all those rights to the uh, four parties who constitute the steering committee. So some people have issues and some people don't with people being required to sign on to plan terms early in a case without any of the protections that usually go with them. But unlike other cases such as uh, Neiman Marcus where there was a plan on file we have a fill-in-the-blank document that uh, does not contain most material terms, if any, for the restructuring of this company and also uh, waives anybody's rights to object to whatever may be plugged into all those holes later. Um, one of the things I note just by example is that uh, there's a milestone 21 days from now for the debtors to deliver to the note holder group of business plan and a populated data room with marketing materials that are acceptable to the note holders. Nobody knows what's going on with this case yet, and that may be by necessity and not due to any negligence of the debtor and its professionals under the circumstances presented. But uh, it's, it's more than problematic to tell people that if they want to participate in the DIP, which is expensive money that everybody would ordinarily want to uh, take advantage of participating in, they have to basically waive all their rights for the rest of the case and don't even know what those uh, terms and conditions are going to be at this point. And that relates to the next point, which is the backstop uh, agreement, which is very, very expensive and also probably of little to no value to the company. So let's take for example, the cash component. I couldn't even figure out exactly what the cash uh, option fee was because I've read two documents that could be subject to three interpretations. It's 10% on something, but on the low credit agreement, it appears to be 10% on the full $150 million facility of $15 million. And in the restructuring agreement, uh, that could be read two ways, is that it's either on only the uh, uncommitted backstop amount, uh, or a third, another way to read it is that it's on the uh, parties uh, piece. So the 72% would have the fee. So I can't even figure out what the fee is uh, from these, these sort of conflicting documents, and maybe people would enlighten us and, and, and recommend some 
Let me, uh, Mr. Novick, and I, and I don't want to cut you off at all. I want to hear all of your issues. You've obviously thought a lot about them. Have you had a chance to talk with anyone from the debtors concerning clarification issues or just not enough time? We, we were engaged this morning, and I was reading papers till the minute I signed on, but I understand our clients have had multiple conversations, Okay. which I think with – the debtors and their uh, professionals have been relatively uh, measured and, uh, and, and uh, respectful, although maybe not so with the majority of lenders who were calling the shots for the secured debt group. Right. Let me ask but whatever you, that number. Do you intend? Do you intend yes. on asking Mr. Keel any questions today? Uh, I don't. I don't think we should take up the time with a cross-examination to for things that can be answered offline. So, um, and again, I'm just and I, and my apologies for interrupting you. You know that I'm a big fan of cross-examination. So, if you think that it would be helpful to my understanding of what's going on, I'm perfectly. I. It's not a waste of time. It's what the time should be used for. If that's something you want to do, if you'd rather have those conversations offline, then obviously. I encourage that as well, but I, I don't want you to think that I don't like that process. I think that process is how we get to the truth. Then we would, we would probably have three to five questions that would probably be uh, effective in, in, in moving the proceeding. Okay. Um, but it might be more helpful if I were to outline the issues first. Whatever that fee is, it's not the, the lenders are not backstopping a $150 million facility because their 72% of the facility is, is their piece. So $108 million, that's 72% of 150, that's not being backstopped. That's their own contribution. They're only backstopping the remaining $42 million. And for a fee that could be as much as $15 million to backstop $42 million seems, uh, seems way off the market. And, and, and just uh, expensive, and just wait till I get to the equity conversion. Uh, a particular reason why the fee seems unearned and unearnable is that uh, Mudrick, our client, and many other of the uh, lenders who are outside the tent right now are glad to participate in this dip um, because it's a very uh, lucrative dip. So the idea that they will actually have to, that the majority lenders will actually have to cover the $42 million is is not supported. People want to get into the tent and want to participate in the dip. And since I can't speak for other parties other than a client, I can represent that we would cover the entire $42 million without a backstop fee. We would take it just for uh, the additional participation in the dip with no cost and expenses to the estate. So we, we don't think there's a value going to the estate here for the majority lenders to take a large backstop fee, the backstop debt that everybody wants to buy into anyhow, um, and, and, and pays well if you are the party who gets it. Now that's if it's a cash fee. The uh, bigger problem, which relates back to the RSA, is that there are rights, first rights, to equitize uh, the backstop fee, the, the, the debt of the uh, backstop parties. Now, 
Equitize it as what? We don't know the plan values here. We don't know how much debt the company is coming out with, nobody's profit and enterprise value. Um, if they were to come out with a plan that has $105 million of equity on emergence, the backstop fee for the majority lenders would equitize into 100% of the company and dilute everybody else to oblivion. And that may be the plan, that may not be the plan. But it highlights two things. It highlights, number one, that this may be an enormously consequential uh, and value-sucking uh, dip provision that the court's being asked to prov uh, approve on an interim basis uh, the same day as the petition without, uh, we don't even know what we're approving here because we don't have any of the terms and conditions and, and, uh, and variables that go into these conversion rights. Um, on top of that, we, these are the same parties that would control the RSA and control the rights of anybody who enters into it, but they have divergent interests from everybody else who's entering into it because they have conversion rights for their backstop fee that are not shared by all the other parties who simply join in as participants in the dip. So it all goes full circle. You have to sign on to a RSA in order to not lose the dip rights. The RSA is under the control of parties who have divergent interests from you because they're taking a backstop fee that converts into as much equity as they want, depending upon how they fill in the blanks, pick values, pick conversion rates, pick discounts for themselves. And uh, this, is, this is just not how the process is supposed to work, where somebody is told, sign on to this on day one, or you're out of the dip, and you may get little to nothing on your uh, pre-petition secured claim, depending upon how much of the dip equitizes into how much of the company. And if you want to participate, then you have to waive all those rights and turn them over to people who don't have the same interest as you. So what's also alarming about this is that the court's being asked to approve this on the full amount of the debt uh, on day one, all the fees, all the uh, backstop fees, all the rights, uh, on day one without any disclosure of what uh, this company might, how this company might come out of bankruptcy. We don't have a business plan for the company. We don't have exit financing for the company. We don't know how much debt will be converted to equity or not converted to equity. And this is all sort of being uh, thrown down everybody's face. You make the decision without any of this information or you're squeezed out and uh, things will almost certainly be worse for you then, but you don't even know. You know, one of, one of the interesting terms in the RSA is that it seems to treat the uh, floating secured notes and the fixed secured notes equally to each other. They don't have the same rights. The fixed secured notes have guarantees from the anagram companies that are doing a separate uh, balance sheet reorganization outside of bankruptcy. And then everybody seems to be in the, in, in the same boat. But the treatment for unsecured creditors is completely undefined. Um, I don't, uh, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's consistent with the bankruptcy code. And I don't think that the court can approve these particular provisions of the dip, let's say for now on an interim basis and pre-approve A that 
you have to make your decision to participate in the DIP, married to participating in the restructuring agreement before there are any terms and disclosure as to what's happening in the case. And the other piece of it is that the restructuring agreement should not be capable of approval when it has so many holes in it. And the answer to all of this is that the four majority lenders will do whatever they want to fill them, including filling them in a way that advantages their large and valuable backup fee at the expense of other parties. And again, this is a backup fee to cover $42 million of unspoken for debt, but people are more than willing to participate in it. The value of the company of this is small because there's a substantial likelihood that it will be spoken for to get into this DIP that pays over 20% when you annualize the fees. So those are our problems with it. We understand... Sorry, there's a delay. My apologies. A couple of questions. Did you, prior to the hearing, convey your client's commitment to take the unspoken for $42 million piece without qualification to Mr. Zeman? As I said, I've been in this case for about six hours, but my understanding is that there have been such discussions among the principals. Okay. Mr. Zeman, were you aware of that? No, Your Honor. Those discussions actually didn't happen. There's a backstory here, as there always is. There always is, but Mr. Novick said, we'll take the other $42 million piece. I just wanted to know if that offer had been conveyed to the debtors and if the debtors had considered it. I'm sorry, Mr. Zeman. I'm with you. Sorry, we couldn't hear you. First time the debtors heard that offer was when Mr. Novick made it. Okay. Fair enough. All right. Then, Mr. Novick, what I would like for you to do, but obviously you're free to do whatever you wish, is I'd like for you to adduce evidence from Mr. Keel regarding the economic issues, because those are the economic issues that are important to me. If you choose not to ask those questions, I understand it, but I do need a record. I would also like to hear folks who are in the middle of it all. I'd like to hear their responses to your questions. Okay? Okay, and we will be glad to oblige, although I would note that there might be a simpler and more effective way to deal with this, which is to move these issues over to the final dip hearing. When everybody has had a chance to review papers that were filed just hours ago, when other lenders who are in communication with us may or may not decide to join in to the process, and so neither the court nor the debtors are stuck with these terms on a first-day hearing that can influence the entire rest of the case. So I guess my first pitch is that approval of the backstop fees 
and issues as to whether or not fit participants must be bound by the RSA should be deferred until the final hearing. These are issues that really dictate the whole outcome of the case. An RSA that people have to sign on to, rights to convert debt to equity on terms that are presently unknown from the publicly filed documents, these things like items that do not need to be approved in order for the debtors to get their initial $5 million of financing and would be much better taken up in a more orderly and thoughtful fashion at the second day hearing. I just want to make sure that I'm following along with what you're telling me. You're telling me you're happy if you get to participate and don't have to sign the RSA. Is that what I heard you tell me? Yes. We would be happy if we get to participate and don't sign this RSA. If the benefits of the backup fee are also offered to all the parties, not just Mudrick, we're fine with everybody else in the debt getting the pro rata offer. Those are the two items that the large and valuable and indeterminately valuable backup fees shouldn't be permitted only to the four ad hoc lenders and that the participation in the debt shouldn't be tied to a commitment to sign on to an RSA that as of yet has no terms in it. I got it. I'm not trying to pick on you at all. I understand greed very well. I understand what to do with greed. Greed is a good thing. Greed makes everything work. I just want to make sure I wasn't misreading that. Again, I hear loud and clear what you're saying. My guess is so did Mr. Scheibel. Mr. Scheibel, did you want to briefly respond? I don't want an argument to ensue. If you want to have a couple of minutes to talk to Mr. Novick offline, I'm certainly willing to consider that as well. Your Honor, I'll take the court's direction. We don't need time to speak with Mr. Novick. I can respond to the arguments, many of which I think ignore a lot of backstory and facts, but I can do that in argument whenever Your Honor prefers. I saw you pop on. I know you wanted to respond. Again, if you want to take a couple of minutes, I'm happy to hear it. If you want to wait until we actually get to the dip, happy to do that as well. It's like when we're trying to talk about what to eat for dinner and neither my wife nor I want to make the decision. Your Honor, I'm perfectly happy to respond now or I can respond when the dip is presented. Would it be helpful to Your Honor to have the Paul White team present the dip and then we can argue in connection with that? I just want to give you the opportunity. If you want to collect your thoughts, I totally understand that as well. Mr. Zeman, let me ask you. First of all, Mr. Lahane, I did not mean to ignore you. I'm guessing your issues are very different than the issues that we've heard about. I certainly want to give you an opportunity to just tell me what you think I ought to be thinking about. 
Uh, Mr. Lane, hold on. Had you hit five star on your phone, or do you have any muted from your side, perhaps? Ah, there you go. I think that's you. Great. Can you hear me, Your Honor? Loud and clear. Thank you. Thank you so much, Your Honor. For the record, Robert Lee Hain, Kelly Dryan Warren, on behalf of numerous landlords, including Fenderson Development, Brookfield Regency Center, for Alan Mackins, Ivan Gold, on behalf of the combined uh, properties at Clarion Partners. And, Your Honor, ordinarily we would have Mr. Sean Wilson making these introductions, but happily, they, he is with his wife welcoming the, the newest member of their family into this world. I, so we ask that you let. Absolutely. I knew that that was imminent. That's great news. That's terrific. Thank you for letting me know. Genevieve Maeve Wilson, healthy and happy. Absolutely. Good, good idea, Mr. Zeman. So, Your Honor, um, as you know, our clients, the landlord community, has been through this this drill many, many times, and we are happy to see a dip that's here to, to, to provide liquidity for the process and happy to see a debtor that wants to move through the process quickly. We understand it's going to be difficult, and we saw loud and clear from the presentation that you know optimizing the real estate platform is a goal of this, and we understand those are difficult. Our issues here are some of them will be very familiar to you, Your Honor, and I'm happy to report that on very, very short notice, my understanding is that the vast majority of the technical issues that usually crop up in an interim dip financing have been handled. The scope of the liens has been limited, so it won't attach the liens that um, leases restrict or prohibit uh, that type of lien, and that we don't have some of the typical issues we sometimes run into with default use and occupancy rights without any notice and that would otherwise not be. Our understanding is that uh, anybody would have to file a motion on notice to parties in order to exercise any default remedies involving use and occupancy. So, um, Mr. Gold may have some questions because the issue here, Your Honor, really is with respect to unpaid January rent and the extent to which the interim dip order is seeking a 506C waiver, 552 waivers, um, at this hearing, Your Honor, in connection with the interim order, uh, typically market would be that that uh, relief is granted at the final hearing. And so I have other colleagues, Mr. Gold may ask some questions, Mr. Orlovsky, and uh, my colleagues at Ballard Spar, I believe it's Laurel Roglin, may want to address this issue, um, which we want to be as efficient as possible. Your Honor, that in sum is our issue. It's the, uh, the 506C waiver before we have an opportunity to understand what the, uh, the, the scope of the uh, stub rent is. And we're happy that the uh, ABL lenders are feeling perfectly adequately protected. The landlords with respect to the unpaid post-petition rent are not adequately protected or, and would like to get there as well. So that's all I have for your honor. Thank you. So thank you. Just a couple of questions to make sure I'm following along. So you, first of all, how many of the 28 that are the subject of the motion to reject do you represent, if I'm remembering the number right? As far as I can tell, Your Honor, only one of those that's on the rejection list, but, at, Your Honor, our clients only found out about this filing um, probably, you know, 16 hours ago, and they're still um, coming to grips with it. So right now I represent probably 10 or so landlords with 40-plus locations, but I expect that number to grow, and we're not sure whether other clients have been impacted by the, the rejection list. My understanding is that the rejection list is locations that were closed um, prior to the bankruptcy, and those probably would not have this issue of unpaid uh, post-petition rent, right? We're talking about the rent from the remainder of January, and although it's not in the record yet, my understanding is 
that January rent was not paid at all locations. So we're dealing with the rent from January 17th through the end of the month. That's a post-petition claim, and we want to understand how that's going to be treated. Got it. All right. Fair enough. Um, that, that's, that's very helpful. Thank you, Mr. Lehane. All right. Anyone else before we go back to Mr. Zeman? Again, five-star on your telephone if you wish to be heard and haven't already done that. All right. Mr. Zeman? So, Your Honor, based on my takeaway of all that, I'd like to propose we proceed as follows. Um, I'd like to move Mr. Kyle's declaration into evidence. I understand there's going to be cross-examination. Let's, <clears throat> let's figure out if there's the need to have a direct in total, first maybe. And then we can, uh, Mr. Churchill is going to present the bit. It sounds like he should come up and present the bit to Your Honor. <clears throat> and so this is also Your Honor's desire, of course. Uh, and then uh, we can uh, make Mr. Olowski and Mr. Kyle available for the cross-examination by Mr. Lahane and Mr. Nervous. And then people can argue whatever they want to argue. All right. Let's do this. Um, I have read Mr. Kyle's declaration and, or Mr. Keel's declaration, my apologies, to, with the understanding that the declaration is for purposes of today only. Are there any objections to Mr. to the admission, uh, subject to cross-examination, of Mr. Keel's declaration, which can be found on the docket at uh, docket number 12? And Mr. Zeman, just for purposes of the record, do you have an exhibit number for me, 26 dash? It's uh, six, Your Honor. Right, 20, 26 dash six. Any objections? All right, thank you. Then it's admitted. Mr. Keel, could you turn your, uh, could you turn your camera on, or is he there in the Paul Weiss room? It actually is Kyle, by the way, Your Honor. Uh, he is here, and yeah. he, he will take a seat uh, under Mr. Olofsky's camera, I believe. And that should appear. So the only issue is the, this is the microphone. I'm going to have to scream. Can you hear Mr. Kyle? It's difficult. Well, can we move that closer? Yes. Your Honor, please indulge us for like about 30 seconds to do a little technical stuff here. Absolutely. You should mute the line while we do that. Certainly. Your Honor, Adam. Yeah, uh, Your Honor, can you hear me okay? I, Mr. Kyle, thank you, and my apologies for getting your name wrong, but your and your voice is loud and clear. Okay. No worries. Thank All right. You. So then, let's do this. If you would, please raise your right hand. Do you swear from the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. All right. Thank you. Mr. Zeman, let me ask you, the declaration is in evidence. Do you wish to adduce any additional testimony on direct? Very All right, thank you. 
Mr. Scheibel, in, since you are supportive of the request, would you like to ask any questions before we submit Mr. Kyle for cross-examination? No, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Is there anyone else that is supportive of the requested relief that would like to adduce any testimony from Mr. Kyle? All right, thank you. Then let me, the parties, or let me just go through the list. Mr. Ruff, do you as trustee have any questions? No, we do not, Your Honor. All right, thank you. And Mr. Novick, are you, I've lost you. Are you, still have your camera on? Ah, there you are. Would you like, would you like to ask Mr. Kiel any questions? Mr. Kiel, I think you've muted me. Mr. Novick, I think you've muted me. Okay, here I am, and I will ask Mr. Kyle a few questions. Mr. Zeman, yes, sir. My partner is Clarence, and he's going to hold his hand with me. All just fine, and to the extent that he is going to engage and raise objections along the way, it was very difficult to hear you. Is there, there's only one microphone in the room, which typically it has to be, just simply because of feedback issues. How far, since, I mean, you're on my screen, you're right next to one another, but that's supposed to be a little funny. Practically, how far away are we from the microphone? I'm just about two feet, Your Honor. Can you hear me okay? I can. What I will say, if you want to raise an objection, you probably ought to be assertive about it, and don't worry about talking over the top of someone else. We'll sort that out. We'll all understand that it's not intentional. This is one of those things where video is not the greatest thing, but we'll all make it work. All right. With that, Mr. Novick, please begin your examination. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Kyle. Mr. Kyle, can you describe, in your own words as a businessman, the economics of the backstop fee that's in the dip and of which approval is sought today? Sure. I think we generally refer to it in this case as a backstop premium, so I'll try and use that terminology. So there's really two scenarios that are contemplated. The first scenario, which I would describe as being the principal scenario from our vantage point, is a scenario where this case and the plan goes forward as contemplated in the RSA, which would, you know, sort of subject to all of the, you know, the open points that have already been discussed earlier in the hearing, but would have the company equitizing the full amount of the first lien debt and pursuing a rights offering that would be offered out to the first lien bondholders to basically fund the exit from bankruptcy and fund the business on a go-forward basis. So if we're in that scenario, then the economics of the backstop fee effectively are that the ad hoc noteholder group bondholders that are backstopping the dip would have the option to essentially convert their holdings in the dip into equity pursuant to that plan on the terms of the contemplated rights offering. So, you know, sort of in layman's terms, the way I would think about that or the way we have thought about that 
is essentially the dip in that sense is serving as kind of a down payment on what otherwise is going to be a rights offering. And, and I'll just uh, use hypothetical numbers since we haven't, you know, gotten to the point yet where we've sized the dip. In a hypothetical where uh, the, the ad hoc group uh, note holders that are uh, the beneficiaries of this provision um, own $100 million of the $150 million dip, and a hypothetical where the equity rights offering would otherwise be, call it $250 million, um, uh, in a world where this provision didn't exist. The effect of this provision essentially would be that the equity rights offering would become $150 million because we wouldn't need to raise the proceeds to the extent that those holders elect to participate in this option. Um, and in essence, uh, you know, those, uh, the, the, that portion of the dip would, uh, effectively be treated as if it was equity in the right stuff. Do you have uh, any view, preliminary or otherwise, on how what the size of the rights offering would be? Let me just say, by the way, I apologize if I keep looking to the side. You're on the screen to my left. So if I'm looking that way, it's because I'm looking at you, not because I'm looking away from you. <laughs> um, you're but I will try to I will try and follow it into the camera. Um, we obviously have, you know, thoughts on, on what this might look like. There's a preliminary business plan um, that management has been working through. I would say, uh, in large part, the question you're asking is probably more a question for Mr. Orlovsky than it is for me in some ways. But we're still, we're still working through uh, that question. There's a lot of variables that go into it. Um, pretty clear to us that the exit rights offering is going to have to be sufficient to pay off the dip. There's a number of costs that aren't funded by the dip that will have to be incurred in connection with exiting from the bankruptcy. So we know that the rights offering is going to have to be substantial. What we haven't uh, sort of put a finer point on is how much liquidity the business is going to need to operate on a go-forward basis So how much of that capital is going to have to remain on the balance sheet. There's a lot of variables that go into that, not just, you know, sort of the business plan, but also the timing in the year of the exit, sort of a very seasonal working capital business, and the terms of the exit ABL, which haven't yet been negotiated, um, you know, that will sort of drive how much of that capital needs to be in the form of equity versus some other form. So would it be fair to say that the $250 million, for example, you proffered was simply pro forma? And uh, the amount could vary significantly from that. Uh, well, I mean, I think I characterized it as hypothetical. I don't know exactly what you mean by pro forma, but it certainly could vary significantly from that. Yeah, I'll take hypothetical. Uh, if the amount was a uh, hundred million dollars, uh, then wouldn't the dip be able to convert into all of the equity? Uh, no. If it was $100 million, the dip would convert into sort of all of the rights offering, but at that point, there'd be no rights offering, so I believe there'd be no conversion rights. I don't know. I mean, that one's sort of circular because you don't have any, any access, but I also don't really see a scenario where that could possibly be the case. But we, we don't know the enterprise value of the company yet because we don't have a business plan. Is that right? That's correct, but we know that there's going to be a capital need to exit from bankruptcy. Right, and we don't know the amount of uh, exit financing, let alone its terms at this point. Is that right? Um, 
And we don't know the liquidity needs of the company upon exit at this point in time, right? So we don't know if $250 million bears any relationship to what the number will be. And, in fact, it could be a substantially lower number, in which case the dip converters would take substantially all of the reorganized equity in the company. Isn't that right? No, I think you're conflating two different issues. I mean, you sort of have like a divide by zero problem if you take the capital need down to $100 million. But let's just take the hypothetical where it's a $250 million rights offering, and I'll concede that the number could be substantially higher or substantially lower depending on the capital need. But let's just say that the enterprise value was higher for the sake of discussion. It could be the case that that $250 million rights offering is purchasing, pick a percentage, 20% of the company or 80% of the company, depending on what the valuation is. What this provision does is if it otherwise was going to be a $250 million rights offering, and in my hypothetical, the ad hoc bondholder group owned $100 million of the debt, which they elected to exchange into those terms. If the $250 million rights offering would have otherwise purchased, let's just say, 25% of the pro forma equity of the business, and the other 75% of the pro forma equity of the business was going to be distributed to creditors pursuant to the plan, the $100 million conversion feature would convert in that scenario into 10% of the equity of the pro forma company. But they also wouldn't have been writing a $100 million new money equity check. So in essence, just eliminating the round trip that otherwise would be equity that's coming in through the rights offering from what's likely to be the same group of people, namely the bondholders who are the sponsors of the plan. So I think the effect of all of that, if you kind of go through the scenarios, is a slight over-application in the rights offering as a result of this provision. But it's not that if the rights offering is smaller, like by definition, the debt is going to convert to 100% of the equity. Well, my question was a little different. My question was if the equity value of the company was considerably smaller. Maybe we have $250 million rights offering, but we only have $275 million of equity because the values are not what people were hoping to be or there's a lot of debt on the company coming out. Then that would mean the debt would take the vast majority of the equity value of the company. Well, I don't know what vast majority means, but if we were to take my hypothetical of it being a $250 million rights offering, then the rights offering would take the vast majority of the equity of the company, of which out of that $250, $100 would effectively be taken up by virtue of this feature, and the other $150 million would be a rights offering out to the balance of the holders. I haven't done the exact math on what that amounts to, but I think what that means is that the ad hoc bondholder group that represents 73% of the equity would end up owning 80% as opposed to 73% or 76% as opposed to 73%. But that other $150 million in that hypothetical would be offered out to all of the bondholders, of which the non-ad hoc group represents 27% or whatever that math is. 
Okay, but 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 all of these are based on a hypothetical that you posited without uh, any basis in, in in the work that you've done yet to to assess the company's financial position, its liquidity needs, its enterprise value, and 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 how much debt it will need coming out of bankruptcy, right? That's true, although I don't know that it changes the mechanics of the hypothetical, which is the reason that I used it to make the point. No, but but it would it would dramatically change the uh, the amount of value that's available for uh, the pre-petition secured creditors. Is that not the case? It's certainly the case that the enterprise value will affect the recoveries of the pre-petition secured creditors. And uh, the pre-petition secured creditors who wish to uh, participate in the DIF, they have to sign on to this agreement without knowing what the enterprise value is or or what treatment and what value will be available for their uh, for their pre-petition claims, right? And uh, in terms of uh, the mechanics, uh, these mechanics can all be changed at the discretion of the majority of the uh, consenting note holders, which is the four members of the ad hoc group, right? When you say all of these mechanics, I mean, I think the RSA speaks for itself, and I'm not a lawyer, but um, there are certain, you know, uh, consent rights that the majority members of the ad hoc group have, and those rights are what they are. But I don't think it's the case that, like, you know, for example, the mechanics that we just talked about around the conversion feature can be unilaterally modified by, you know, the majority members of the ad hoc group. They have, you know, the consent rights that they have under the RSS. We don't know what the conversion terms are at this point, correct? Well, we know what we just discussed. What we don't know is what the economics of the rights offering is going to be. And so the agreement with respect to the conversion feature is that it'll be on the same economics as the rights offering. So I walked through one hypothetical of how you know, we've thought about that. Um, but in terms of what the specific right, you know, terms of the rights offering are, the size, the valuation, the discount, we don't know that sitting here today. And, and sitting here today, if somebody uh, had to make a decision whether or not they want to sign on to the RCA, the RSA, they uh, they would have no basis to understand what uh, treatment, uh, what value uh, would be afforded to their uh, pre-petition claims. That's true. The RSA. That's true. Uh, can you discuss the uh, cash alternatives on the? Uh, on the uh, backstop premium? Yeah, uh, and thank you. I was, I was uh, considering pivoting back to that, but figured I'd wait for you to ask the follow-up. Um, so the other scenario is, is the cash uh, the cash payment. So I would say from, from the debtor's perspective, this is very much, you know, kind of a plan B fallback uh, scenario because our intention is to move forward with the plan as contemplated under the RSA. But if for some reason the plan, uh, you know, as it's contemplated, doesn't go forward, um, we've agreed to this alternative construction where the backstop premium would be paid in cash um, in lieu of uh, the conversion option. I should say, by the way, that in the conversion option scenario, it's the lender's option to take the company up on that offer. If they choose not to, then there's effectively no backstop premium in that sense. In the cash payment, um, in the cash payment scenario, so this would be, you know, in a world where for whatever reason we're not moving forward with pursuing the plan, um, which is
which again would be very much a sort of a plan B. But one hypothetical that would be captured in that scenario would be uh, if we were to pivot to a sale process as opposed to a plan process. And in that scenario, there's a 10% fee uh, that's, that's payable to the stock market. 10% on what? 10% on 50 million. I'm sorry, was there an answer? Oh, I cut out. I'm sorry. There was a little bit of noise in the room. 10% uh, on the 150 million. 10% on the $150 million. so that's $15 million. The amount you're backstopping, 28% of $150 million is $42 million. So this would be a backstop fee of $15 million for backstopping $42 million? Uh, well, there's some characterizations in there, but it would be $15 million for backstopping the facility. Right, but the portion of the facility as of today that is uh, not committed that requires backstopping is only $42 million, right? Well, I mean, I would make the argument that the full amount needs to be committed. Um, but, yes, the amount of the dip that's not sort of pro rata spoken for within the ad hoc group is, I haven't done, I haven't verified your calculation, but that sounds about right to me. Okay, so that means the, the, the backstop is a fee, uh, the cash fee is more than a third of the amount that's being backstopped. Well, the cash fee is only payable in certain scenarios. I think it's, you know, first of all, it's a sort of a subset of outcomes under which that gets paid at all, and from our perspective, very much a plan B. It clearly has been, uh, you know, kind of the trend in the market for you know, backstop fees like this to be paid on the full facility amount um, as opposed to kind of the non pro rata amount. This was you know, a, uh, a term that was addressed uh, pretty extensively in our negotiations with the ad hoc group. The company pushed back both on the magnitude of that provision and the structure of that provision. Um, it's obviously important to us that we, that we have the dip. This was central to the negotiation of the dip, and um, you know, that's sort of where that negotiation landed. All right, the math is the math, right? Uh, subject to anybody disagreeing with, with the calculation, there's $42 million of uh, uncommitted debt loan and for agreeing to backstop that the lenders would receive, uh, if they receive the fee, $15 million. I don't think there's any dispute about your arithmetic and, you know, the characterization is the characterization. From our perspective, it was important to have the full $150 million commitment on the case. Now, the, uh, well, you know, the, 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 according to the uh, proposed order, the uh, backstop and all the other fees on the dip will be uh, fully earned when the first draw closes, uh, which is expected to be a day or two from now. Uh, do you disagree with that? That's my understanding. Okay, so on an interim basis, uh, the first draw is $75 million. That means uh, the backstop portion, uh, you, you have $108 million of commitment. You're only putting up $75 million, but you're asking to have a fully earned fee for the backstop portion that may or may not be paid subject to a final order. Is that, uh, am I misreading that? I mean, that's a, uh, a legal 
question. That's consistent with my understanding of how it works. I will say that the lenders are committing to the full $150 million today, irrespective of when the company draws it or when the company's authorized to draw it. So from the lender's perspective or from the bondholder's perspective, you know, the full $150 million of capital has to be committed. Right. In the event the final order is not entered, uh, the lenders will be in top $15 million backstop, uh, backstop fee or backstop premium uh, on funds that they never actually loaned. In the event that we're not pursuing the plan and we, you know, sort of pivoted into that second scenario, I believe that's right. Have you had conversations with other uh, parties who were interested in providing uh, dip loans to the company? Yes. Well, we're interested in considering providing dip loans to the company. I should probably say it that way. And if I'm if I'm reading your uh, uh, declaration correctly, and please correct me if I'm not, none of those conversations came to fruition because the uh, four backstop parties held 51% of the secured debt and had the ability to block any uh, other uh, offers. Is that correct? Uh, well, I would, uh, I would say it's partially correct. I mean, it's, it's correct in a sense, but it's not the whole story. Have you had any conversations with uh, non-backstop parties, uh, lenders who have indicated they're interested in uh, participating in the debt? Uh, so, well, I've had a number of conversations with non-backstop bondholders who have expressed an interest in considering either participating or providing a debt. We filed the case, you know, overnight. Um, so, None of them were necessarily aware of the terms of the dip that we were negotiating. I haven't spoken to anybody today since uh, the terms of the dip have become public. So if your question is, has anybody specifically expressed an interest to me in participating in this dip? The answer to that is no. If the question is, you know, have we spoken to bondholders along the way about their, you know, desire slash interest in either providing their own financing or participating in a hypothetical financing, the answer to that is yes. So, do you have any reason to believe that the uh, backstop parties would actually have to fund the uh, $40 million of uh, uncommitted dip loans as opposed uh, to the advantage of it? Yeah, I really don't know. What I can say from the company's perspective is that it was very important to us, and we pushed for this from the beginning, that the opportunity to participate in this be made available to all holders on a pro rata basis. And um, the ad hoc group was amenable to accommodating that so that everybody has the opportunity to participate. It was also important to the company that the full amount of the $150 million was you know, committed to by somebody going into the case. Um, you know, I really can't speak for the ad hoc group in terms of their deliberations over you know, who's in that group or not in the group. Um, those were the issues that were important to the company, and, and we were able to accomplish that through the negotiation. 
Did you do any work to assess the market reasonableness of the backstop fee? I mean, we looked at a number of comps. I would say, you know, that the circumstances here are somewhat unique, as I guess they always are. But we did look at, you know, other cases where there are backstops. You know, generally speaking, what you see is like a cash fee that's sort of payable under any circumstance. Like, so it might be, you know, additional loans that are issued up front or cash fees payable on exit. So this sort of two-tiered or, you know, two-scenario structure, I'm not sure I've seen this particular structure. One of the things that, you know, we found, you know, in some ways more advantageous to the company is the fact that the terms of the exit will be subject to, you know, kind of the balance of the process, if you will. So what we don't have here is the dip lenders kind of locking in minimum economics in the equity conversion, which you have seen in other cases. You know, so in other cases it might say, you know, that we're going to convert into equity at a value that is no higher than X. So if it turns out the value is significantly higher than that, it could create a windfall. And so here the idea was really to defer the value and, in essence, create a dynamic where, you know, the backstop premium is really, as I said earlier, a down payment on what we expect to be the future rights offering. And as a result, nobody really knows how to value it at this point in time. Is that right? Well, nobody knows how to value it in the sense that you can't put a dollar on it. But the flip side to that is it will be driven by, you know, the economics of the rights offering, which will have to be, you know, approved from the time come. This fee does, this dip does include, in fact, an 8% fee earned on approval, right? Yeah, that you're referring to the commitment premium? That's right. That's offered to, that's true, and it's offered to, you know, all participating lenders. That economic is available to, in essence, all of the pre-petition person lenders who opt to participate in the dip. The term of the dip? The length of the term? Five months. Five months? Five months with a one-month extension option. That 8% fee would annualize to over 20%, right? I mean, if you take it and basically just double it on account of this effectively being a six-month dip, if you take into the extension, take into account the extension option, I guess that's, you know, 16. If you can do it up to five months, I trust that that arithmetic gets to 20. The one thing I will say is that it's payable at the end, and it's not accruing interest in the interim, and obviously the interest rate on this is not insignificant. So you can argue about whether, like, the economic value of that on day one is something less than the 8% that's getting paid at the end, because there's no sort of return on that capital, so to speak, in the interim. But, yes, it's expected. And the backstop parties fund more than their pro rata share of the dip, because lenders didn't participate, they'll get more than their pro rata share of that fee. Yes? Well, they'll get 8% on whatever they fund. But I would say if that's the world that we find ourselves in, it's a good thing that we have the backstop commitment. I think that 
and the uh, what what would be the uh, the day one interest rate on the day? approximately? Uh, well, it's still for plus ten. I'm sitting here today. I don't actually know what the uh, the current SOFR is. I think it's like four 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 and a half percent, something like that. You are in the ballpark. Okay. Now, you, you mentioned a couple of times the parties can participate pro rata in the dip, but uh, minority uh, bondholders, they, also, they don't get to participate at all in the backstop fee. Isn't that right? The non-ad-hoc group bondholders do not. I will say that there are bondholders of different sizes that are within the ad hoc group. So, I mean, there are small, there are bondholders that are already subject to the RSA that, you know, will be subject to the same kind of drag-along provisions that they highlighted. How many uh, organizations uh, are in the ad hoc group? Four. Four. And uh, the minority bondholders won't have uh, equivalent rights uh, if they are forced to sign on to the restructuring support agreement, because uh, all 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 the rights are are held and locked up by the majority, uh, which is the four bondholders, is that not right too? Well, amongst the four bondholders, I think there's two that represent the majority. So, in that sense, it's locked up with those two, which is a subset of the ad hoc group. Is it not the uh, contemplation of the debtors that uh, the rights offerings, whether to uh, to to unsecured creditors, to, excuse me, to pre-petition creditors or to uh, dip converts, uh, will be at a discount to plan value? I mean, that's certainly the market practice, and it's a pretty common structure, but that hasn't been negotiated yet. So this is this would be another term that a party signing on to the RSA would, would would not know what they're signing on for, is that right? Correct. But at any rate, the more conversion rights you get at a discount to market value, the more value you get at the expense of other stakeholders. Is that not correct? Uh, I mean to the extent that the rights offering is at a discount to plan value. The extent to which you, you know, effectively have the ability to over-allocate would, in that sense, yes, move value from one creditor to another creditor. Is your understanding that the backstop commitment premium will be fully earned uh, on the date that the first uh, payment uh, under the debt uh, is transmitted? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if it's when the dip gets approved or when, let's say, hang on, back up. Which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the 8%, the backstop premium or the commitment premium? So actually, both of them, right? I'll, I'll ask them separately so it's not a compound question. Let's start with the backstop premium. Okay. Yeah, I, I, don't have the documents in front of me, so I 
the documents speak for themselves, and people can correct me if I if I have this wrong. But my understanding is that the backstop premium, not sure if it's when uh, the bid gets funded or when it gets approved, but in any event, in connection with the interim uh, the interim approval. Right, and and before the final get approval here, yes. And and that would also be true for the eight percent fee that gets uh, approved and earned uh, as soon as the initial dip drop closes. Um, I believe that, that's right, but again, I think the documents speak for themselves. Okay. Um, have the debtors created a data room yet with marketing materials uh, for for the uh, for unsecured creditors to look at to make decisions about whether to opt into the RSA and the dip? Uh, you said unsecured creditors. I assume you mean secured creditors. Um, I do. I mean. Yeah. So uh, we have um, information that we have compiled uh, that we've used in connection with our negotiations with the ad hoc group, um, the substance of which I think has been made public today, although I don't know exactly what the means for that dissemination was. Somebody filed an 8K or otherwise. Um, so we sometimes colloquially refer to those as the blowout materials. So the ad hoc group is, um, is now... Uh, Unrestricted, and that information has been made public and is available to, to everybody. Um, I, I would also note that there have been parties um, that we've been that we've talked to along the way, uh, including at least one bondholder who's not a member of the ad hoc group that's expressed an interest in, in considering providing this financing. That signed NDAs pre-petition. They were also provided access to that before it was made public. Okay, this is this is not. Play gotcha. It's actually the milestones in the uh, restructuring support agreement. Uh, as I read it, uh, the debtors have from 21 days to the petition date to uh, deliver a business plan that's acceptable to the ad hoc note holders group and to populate a data room with marketing materials that are acceptable to the required consenting note holders. Um, yeah. That not happened yet, right? That has not happened. And 21 days is after the deadline for parties to uh, opt into the dip in the RSA or decline to. Correct. So they, they won't have access to this information, the data room and the business plan, until after it's too late for them to make a decision to, uh, to participate in the dip and commit themselves to the RSA. Correct? I don't think the business plan nor the data room are intended to be made available to really anybody outside of the company. Um, so they're sort of two separate things. The members of the ad hoc group or their advisors are going to have to get restricted to evaluate, you know, the business plan and to evaluate, you know, the, the completeness of the data room um, to satisfy that milestone. But the purpose of that information is not to give somebody, you know, the information they need to evaluate whether they want to participate in this. And frankly, the information that was, you know, contained in the blog materials is the information that the ad hoc group lenders relied on in committing to this dip already. Uh, you, you said, I thought I heard you say that the business plan is not for distribution outside of the company. Is that, did I hear that right? 
mean, presumably there will be a summary of the business plan that ultimately gets contained in the disclosure statement. Um, but, you know, the, the milestone is related to, I think, a much more, you know, kind of detailed, um, you know, kind of work product. And that work product will be distributed to the ad hoc mobile according to the milestone, correct? Well, the ad hoc note holder group has to be satisfied with it, whether that means that their advisors review it on their behalf or the note holders, you know, choose to sign and, you know, um, satisfactory NDAs, the company's, you know, prepared to share it with them. But it's not the company's intention to make that business plan available to anybody who's not, you know, under an appropriate NDA. I'm going to try to wrap this up fairly soon. You promised three to five questions. <laughs> well, then, then we got some more arguments. It got more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the just to confirm the uh, real whatever reorganized equity is offered to pre-petition creditors in the company is subject to dilution by the rights offer. Is that right? Uh, yeah. And it's also subject to dilution by the uh, dip equitization. Is that right? I mean, again, I would think about the dip equitization as being, you know, kind of part and parcel with the rights offering, some ways down payment on the rights offering, but if you want to think of them as two separate things, then the answer is yes. Okay, I'm looking at... Uh, Treatment of pre-petition claims or interests uh, in the uh, restructuring term sheet, which is filed at page 91-260 of docket number 11. And the last is... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I just want to try and find the document that you're referring to. So docket number 11, what 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 document is that? It's a document number, number 11, which... Uh, around page 88 starts the restructuring term sheet. I don't know that. Um, I, yes, I have that document in front of me. Go ahead. Okay, and towards the bottom of the page, the box is treatment of secured notes claims. Uh, what page number? Page. Uh, on, on the code on the top, it says 91 of 260, and on the bottom intro document, it says page 4. Yep. Okay, I'm, I'm there. Okay, so I'll, I'll start to belabor this by being it, but just so it's here. Each holder of a secured notes claim shall either receive, one, its pro rata share of the equity of the reorganized company, uh, defined as the reorganized equity and of the applicable entity, defined as the reorganized company, to be determined by the debtors with the consent of the required consenting note holders subject to dilution by the rights offering, the management incentive plan as defined herein, and to the extent applicable, the dip equitization. And it says, or two, such other treatment as agreed between the debtors and the required consenting note holders. So uh, the required consenting note holders and the debtors can agree to uh, completely change the treatment uh, proposed in the RSA. Is that not correct? 
Uh, they can change the treatment of the secured note claims, yes. Turning to the next page, uh, it says, treat this for treatment of general unsecured creditors. That's on page 92 of 260, or internal page 5. Yes, that's right. And the creditor says treatment of general unsecured claims shall be set forth in the plan and be acceptable to the debtors and the reorganized consenting note owners. So uh, this RSA provides no uh, specific or even vague and general treatment for the unsecured creditors. Is that right? Correct. And if the debtors and required consenting note holders decided to, uh, you know, give a, hypothetically, give the unsecured uh, claims a treatment that violated absolute priority, anybody who signed on to this RSA would be powerless to object to that. I mean, I think it's uh, a legal question as to what powers people have but uh, the RSA would uh, require them to support the plan. Right. And without, so they have to agree now, in order to participate in the DIP, to support a plan that doesn't provide any specifics as to the treatment of general unsecured creditors and can be decided by uh, a couple bondholders and debtors without uh, any negotiation or input from anybody else. Is, is that uh, inaccurate in any way? Uh, I don't believe so. Okay, I don't, uh, one last question. Uh, did you or any professionals acting under your direction or in conjunction with you, make any effort to uh, market or market price the backstop premium? Uh, I mean, we looked at, at comps. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, we did a bit of a study. We didn't, you know, market it in the sense of reaching out to third parties to see if they would backstop. It's just that requires the consent of the consenting holders. It, it may have taken some people by surprise, but uh, you heard on today's conference that Mudrick has offered to provide the backstop for no backstop premium. Uh, does that uh, influence your assessment of the reasonableness of the backstop premium in the dip? Well, I mean, the issue is that it's all sort of, uh, it's all an integrated finance, right? So it's great that, you know, Mudrick is prepared to effectively backstop the balance at no fee. And, of course, from the company's perspective, we'd love to have, you know, as little fees as possible. But if the result of that is that we have no dip financing because the deal with the ad hoc group falls apart, and there's no real path forward to do the disc with just Mudrick. Um, I'm not sure 
Well, I know where that leaves us. It doesn't leave us in a good place. Um, and so we've, I mean, we've had conversations with, with Mudrick over time. Um, from time to time, they've reached out to us, for example, and said, you know, that they have a term sheet that they'd want to propose or that they want to get restricted to consider providing an alternative to financing. And we've engaged with them every step of the way and encouraged them to send us a term sheet in that regard. I mean, I didn't have the conversation today specifically with, with anybody there about the particular offer that <laughs> you've put in front of me here. But, um, but the bottom line is that well, the backstop premium is being paid in consideration of offering the backstop, right? Your Honor, I just would ask that um, there's no allowed a witness to finish his answer. I agree. I, I, Absolutely. I, I don't think that it was intentional. It's just one of the things we we have to deal with when we're on video. Uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Kyle, did you want to finish your answer? I think my voice is probably trailing off, so it's probably as much on me as on Mr. Novick. Um, I don't know that there was anything else that I needed to ask. All right. Thank you. Mr. Novick, next question. The next question was the backstop premium that is being provided the consenting note holders in consideration for offering to backstop the uncommitted portion of the dip. Yes? Well, it's in connection with them agreeing to commit to the full dip. I would say, and I think we've had a bunch of back and forth in terms of, you know, how that was calculated and some back and forth around, you know, the negotiations over time. But the important thing from the company's perspective is that we have, you know, access to the debt and that the debt is fully committed. And without this provision, uh, you know, we don't have an agreement with the ADAC group. I have no further questions. Thank you. All right. Okay, thank you, Mr. Thank you. Mr. Kyle, let me ask you, would you agree that this is expensive money? Yeah. And would you agree that it is incumbent upon you to get the best deal that could be structured for the company? Yeah. And is it your professional opinion that this is the best available option for the debtors under the circumstances that they face? Yes. And how did you reach that conclusion? Well, I mean, we have spoken to a number of investors over time. I addressed some of this in my declaration. But we've spoken to a number of investors over time, um, both about financing to try and, you know, keep the company operating on an adequate basis and also with respect to dip financing. Um, unlike a lot of other cases, actually, we had a couple of, of different dip proposals on different structures that, that we considered. So we had a proposal from uh, our existing ABL lenders uh, to roll the ABL into a dip and then in turn into an exit. And J.P. Morgan, who's our our ABL um, agent had offered to market a what I would describe as a large philo, um, but in essence a junior term loan against the ABL collateral, so it would have sort of fit within the ABL structure. And in that sense, wouldn't have required a specific priming of um, of the first lien note holders um, term loan collateral, so to speak. 
So we encourage J.P. Morgan to, to pursue that structure, uh, you know, frankly, based on all of the conversations that we've had with lots and lots of investors over several months. We were very skeptical about the viability of that structure, but we encouraged them to see if they could put it together, and it didn't come together. We had a, uh, a separate term sheet from an institution that I would describe as a non-bank um, ABL lender that in some ways was similar to the J.P. Morgan facility, except that they were prepared, or the J.P. Morgan proposal, except that they were prepared to speak for the full capital amount. The issue we had with that proposal is the FILO, uh, or the term loan piece of it, was contemplated to be $100 million. There was some due diligence requirements that gave us concern that that number could get to be smaller than $100 million once we got through the diligence, but taking that at, at face value uh, it still wouldn't have been sufficient to fund the case. And importantly, that proposal was specifically predicated on the bondholders um, providing the balance of the capital because that particular lender in their structure, because they were taking, you know, essentially enterprise value risk by lending deeper into the asset base, was very concerned about uh, making sure that there was sponsorship for the process from, you know, the fulcrum security holders that ultimately were going to be you know, sort of central to funding the reorganization. And so they didn't want to fund a case that didn't also have a capital commitment from the parties that were going to be critical to getting this company out of bankruptcy on the other side. We had conversations with uh, the ad hoc group, and there were direct conversations amongst the principals of that financial institution and the ad hoc group about partnering on a facility. So on its face, that may have been um, somewhat less expensive, but it would have been in some ways a riskier proposition for the first lien note holder group because, in essence, there would have been more debt that was priming them, and that wasn't a risk that they were prepared to take. So we looked at a lot of different structures and talked to a lot of different people to try and figure out what alternatives are out there. At the end of the day, um, you know, all of the financings that were in front of us that, that may have been sufficient to fund the case go through the first lien bondholder group. And we have, you know, fortuitously, we have a situation here where the bonds are concentrated to the point where four institutions represent, you know, almost three quarters of, of the first thing bonding. All right. I mean, Mr. Novick, do you want to ask any follow-up questions limited to my area of inquiry? Uh, no, thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, any redirects for Mr. Kyle? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, I'll try to be brief. Oh, please. Mr. Kyle, uh, in response uh, to uh, Judge Jones' questions, you described the process whereby you were negotiating with other parties about potential financing. Is that accurate? Yes. When were those negotiations taking place? Um, through, like, for the most part in December and into early January. It was at the same time period we were having negotiations with the ad hoc group? Yes. So simultaneously with negotiating with the ad hoc group, you were exploring other potential alternative finances. Is that accurate? Yes. And based on those negotiations, did you reach any conclusions concerning whether there were any uh, adequate, viable alternatives to the current uh, that is being proposed. Uh, yes, I reached a conclusion, and no, I don't think there's any alternative viable. 
there was uh, some questions by Mr. Novin about uh, interactions with uh, his client, Mudrick. Do you recall that? Yes. Can you please describe for us your recollection of uh, discussions that you had pre-petition with Mudrick? Sure. Um, so I should probably just preface this by saying that we've been advising this company for a long time um, through a number of different transactions. So our involvement with PCHI has been known to the market and we get calls pretty regularly from investors uh, you know, to sort of talk about the situation. So there have been lots of conversations that have happened over a long period of time and I don't remember all of them. But in the, in the most recent period, um, we had had uh, a couple of conversations I remember, including one with management and with Mudrick that probably was in October or November. Um, there were uh, you know, at least one or two follow-up conversations where uh, Mudrick indicated a desire to be part of the ad hoc group, which we both relayed to the ad hoc group advisors and also, you know, communicated to Mudrick that we don't really control who's in the ad hoc group, but we'd be more than happy to see them be uh, active participants in the process. Uh, and then more specifically, there was an outreach uh, that I I think it was in like mid-December, which I think was uh, you know probably after some conversations between the principals where it was becoming clear that uh, at least at that point in time, the ad hoc group wasn't looking to add additional members, uh, so to speak. So Mudrick reached out to me um, to say, hey, we've been trying to participate with the ad hoc group. They're not having us. Uh, you know, we have another group of bondholders that may be interested in providing a financing proposal. Let me know if it makes sense to send you a term sheet. Uh, to which I responded, I think within minutes, uh, well, we can't really control who the ad hoc group will have in their party, but if you have a financing proposal that you'd like us to consider, this isn't verbatim, by the way, it's paraphrasing, but um, if you have a proposal you'd like us to consider, we're happy to consider it. Uh, and there was no response to, to my email until early January um, after the New Year, so maybe January 5th or 6th or something like that, where, you know, the Mudrick team sort of reiterated that they still hadn't been successful in being invited to the ad hoc group and that they were prepared to sign an MBA uh, to consider providing an alternative dip, to which we responded very quickly, sounds good, we'll give you an MBA, which we did. Um, they then signed the MBA that day or the next day. Uh, we provided them with access to, uh, you know, the blog materials um, and the other, you know, information that had been provided to the ad hoc group principals. Uh, we had a follow-up conversation a couple of days later, answered some questions. Um, I believe there were members from the Alex Partners team that participated in that call, um, and that was kind of where it ended. That was probably, I don't know, a week ago or so. Did they ever propose a term sheet to you for a uh, comprehensive gift financing? No. Um, you uh, referred at one point to the backstop premium uh, as being part of an integrated financing. Can you just explain uh, your testimony that the backstop premium is part of an integrated financing uh, that is being proposed here? I don't think we have the option of, you know, sort of taking down the pro rata portion of the of the dip without, you know, it being fully backstopped. I mean, as I said a couple of times, it's important to the company that we have a fully committed facility. But, um, 
you know, I don't think that the structure or the agreement with the note holders would allow us to move forward with the financing without the backstop. Um, now, in terms of your negotiations directly with the ad hoc group, can you describe how that negotiation uh, proceeded, or the terms specifically subject to negotiation uh, during the course of the period of your engagement? Yeah, I mean, I would say we negotiated virtually every time um, in the facility. Um, and when I say we, I really mean, you know, the company and all of its advisors because, you know, I and my team were involved in that, but so was your firm, and so was Mr. Orlovsky and his firm, both management team. Um, the original proposal that we received from uh, the ad hoc group, you know, included features like, you know, rolling up a portion of the pre-petition that there was no specificity around whether it was going to be offered out to, um, to all of the bondholders. And in the first instance, um, there was no, uh, you know, kind of sizing or economic terms. So it was sort of like, I would describe it as a structural term sheet as opposed to an economic term sheet. And so we had some back and forth as related to the structure before the principles in the ad hoc group got restricted. And then once they got restricted, um, a lot of the negotiation moved towards, you know, kind of the more economic terms. And then also things like uh, the dip budget and the covenants and some of the mechanics around the funding. Um, the original uh, ask from the company was for a larger facility, um, and so we had a back and forth with the bondholder group around the level of commitment that they were prepared to make. Um, in connection with that, there's also sort of a minimum liquidity concept that's embedded in, in the dip, which, uh, you know, may or may not ultimately be available uh, to the company in some ways, and so uh, we negotiated both the size of that reserve and the terms of that reserve. Uh, the ad hoc group agreed to reduce their interest rate by, I think, two and a half percent. The, uh, uh, the commitment premium was, I think, 10 percent initially, and we were able to negotiate it down to 8 percent. Um, the 10 percent cash fee that we've been talking about here in connection with the, um, the backstop provision was originally 15 percent. Uh, you know, at one point we had asked for it to be only on the, uh, sort of non uh, ad hoc group pro rata amounts to the 40-something percent that Mr. Novick was talking about. Uh, we weren't successful in, in getting that uh, change made, but we were successful in reducing it from 15% to 10% through the negotiation. So really you kind of go through almost every term in the uh, in the JIP facility and there was some level of negotiation around each other. Okay. Um, fair to say that the economics were negotiated and came down through the course of the negotiation with the ad hoc group, is that fair? Yes. Yeah. Um, based on your negotiation with the ad hoc group um, and your discussions with other parties about potential alternatives, are you satisfied this is the best available, viable financing uh, available for the company to fund the chapter election? Yes. Yeah. Um, there was some testimony and questions about other, uh, uh, about the cost of the, uh, uh, the dip overall. And you referred to having looked at some comparables. Um, Your Honor, we have a table um, that I'd like to put on the screen as a demonstrative exhibit, if I may. And it is not on the docket. All right. Um, well, let's you can put it up, and we'll see if there is an objection to it as a demonstrative. I need to put you back on. I don't see the Paul Weiss presentation. Uh, party anymore? 
Who should I give control to? There's a Paul Weiss. Certainly. I'm sorry, Your Honor, one moment. Certainly. While we try to uh, get that on the screen, I'll ask a few uh, questions to introduce the subject. All right. Can you describe for us the, um, the, the comparables that were reviewed for purposes of evaluating the reasonableness of this financing? Yeah, so um, at the end of the day, like nothing is going to be 100% comparable. So we tried to find, you know, other examples that were as reasonably comparable as we could find. So we focused on recent, um, you know, kind of uh, retail and consumer products bankruptcies where the dip financing was, you know, kind of of a similar size. I think we looked at 150 million dollar to billion dollar dip, something like that. Um, and there were a number of oh, there's the truck. So uh, there were a number of examples that we were able to find. Um, over the last couple of years. Um, sorry, I'd like to interject with uh, an objection, Your Honor. None of this was, uh, unless I missed it, and I don't think I did, was in their filings in support of the motion. Um, there aren't supposed to be demonstratives unless they're summarizing material that's already available to the party. I recognize the timing that was at issue here, uh, but nonetheless, showing up with this uh, at the hearing, literally in the middle of the hearing, after cross-examination, in the middle of redirect, uh, is, is not appropriate. Nobody can uh, understand or analyze the comparables and do the research necessary to know if they are really comparable or not. Like the cross-examine uh, the witness on whether or not they're comparable. And uh, I, I appreciate that uh, comps are, are relevant, but this is not something that should be in the interim hearing. This is a, uh, a classic example of why uh, as many issues as possible should be deferred until the final dip hearing 
until there's been adequate notice and, and a chance for people to review uh, the material, maybe with their own experts, and, and determine uh, how, uh, how uh, useful it is and how much veracity there is and how comparable the comparables are. So I, I have to uh, object to this uh, line of testimony and documents being introduced for the first time on a redirect. All right. With respect to with respect to the chart, I'll sustain the objection. Let's move along. Um, Mr. Kyle, uh, it's fair to say, based on your review of comparables that you were uh, asked about on cross examination, the interest rate you concluded was within the range of what we've seen in other financing within the set that you were reviewing? Yeah, um, I think um, actually Mr. Scheibel addressed uh, a couple of the sort of elements of this that I, I, I would highlight uh, in his remarks. But, um, you know, most dip financings, you know, people think of as being at the top of the capital structure. In a lot of ways, this dip financing is a bridge to what's going to become an equity rights offering if we move forward on the plan as contemplated under the RSA. Um, so in looking at, you know, the other uh, the kind of retail and consumer cases, um, it, in some instances, in a lot of instances, there are parallel elements to those financing. Um, they tend to be more expensive, um, you know, and, and, and a number of them, many of them are very much in line with, uh, with the economics that we've negotiated here. Was it your conclusion that Brian, I'm going to reiterate my objection on, on the basis of also foundation. We don't know what comparables uh, the witness is forwarding, referring to. We don't know what the terms of those comparables are. We don't know what businesses those companies were in. We don't know what their balance sheets look like compared to, to this debtors. We don't know the size of those companies compared to these debtors. And we don't know uh, any of the dip terms in those other cases. So I don't think uh, there's any basis for introducing this uh, testimony into this hearing. So I think the testimony is directly related to his comments that he's done his job. You certainly are going to get another opportunity to cross him. And if you want to introduce the chart and question him about his basis for making the statements that he made, you're certainly welcome to do that. So the objections are ruled. Let's go ahead, please. What was the question? Um, I don't know if we have the ability to read back the question, but I can. Uh, we do. We do not. It. Sorry about that. Um, can you describe how your review of uh, comparable financing influenced your ultimate conclusion that the economic terms of this financing are reasonable? Um, yeah, I mean, we looked at a number of other financings that we viewed as being reasonably comparable. None of them are going to be precisely comparable. Um, and in the similarly, yeah, in, in, in the set that we were looking at, um, you know, the, the economics of this dip are, um, you know, broadly consistent. Um, we also looked at, you know, a couple of other recent cases that had very, very expensive dips or have proposed dips that are very expensive. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, clear that there are other dips that are more expensive than this one, whether those situations are, are comparable. Um, I think that's a question. Um, there were 
questions asked on cross-examination about um, whether if the dip is not approved on a final basis, the entire backstop premium would be payable. I believe there was some uncertainty on your part in answering that question. Would it be fair that in order to answer that question, you would uh, need to consult about uh, the amount that would approve in the event that uh, the dip is not approved on a final basis? Uh, absolutely. I have nothing from you, Your Honor. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Let me make the circle one more time. Um, Mr. Sh oh, we forgot. I forgot the landlord. They all disappeared on me. Mr. Gold, uh, are you are you the point person for the issues that were raised by, I'm just going to call it the, uh, the landlord group? <clears throat> Your Honor, that may have been, uh, I believe they were for having questions for Mr. Orlowski. I'm not sure. Oh, I, I actually, maybe I maybe I misunderstood. I, Mr. Gold, it can't hurt to ask you twice. Did you have any questions uh, for this witness? Uh, Mr. Gold, I think you may have me muted. Ah, got it. How about now? There we go. Thank you again, Your Honor. I've been bold for a number of the landlords. Um, Mr. Kyle, just in response to one of the questions, just raised an issue that I'd like to visit as part of our examination. And, and I assure you this is very discreet. Certainly. Um, if, if I may proceed. Please. Um, Mr. Kyle, as part of your review of other dip financing agreements, um, and I, I know the chart was excluded, but if you could get some of those cases in your head as part of that, um, did you look at covenants and not just economic terms? Um, I mean, we're I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, the variance covenants and things of that nature that are commonly in this facilities, but we didn't do a study of the covenant packages in any of those dip relatives, this one. Did you look at any of the underlying documentation, whether in the form of the dip credit agreements or the orders approving those financings in the public bankruptcy cases that you had looked at? Um, others on my team did. I didn't personally. Uh, were those synthesized in any fashion in a memorandum that you looked at so that you could answer a question or two about it, or is that something you didn't focus on? Are you asking specifically about the covenants or more broadly? Specifically about covenants. No. I'll ask you, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll even go deeper, but I think your answer will still be no. Is in your review of comparable transactions, did you look at the scope and timing of what's called the 506C waiver, that being Bankruptcy Code Section 506C and the ability of the debtor to surcharge the lender's collateral? for certain operating expenses post-petition? You did not. Okay, that's all I have, Your Honor. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right, now let me make the circle. Uh, Mr. Ruff, U.S. Trustee, have any questions based on what it's heard? No, we do not, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Mr. Scheibel, did you have any questions based on what you've heard? No, Your Honor. 
Thank you. Thank you. And so I think I'm back, Mr. Novick, limited area, but I, I do think that it's to the extent that you wish to make inquiry, I think that it's appropriate. Uh, I'm not going to make inquiry about the comparables. Uh, I think it's a legal issue that having failed to disclose any comparables before the hearing, having failed to identify what these comparables are, even during the hearing, what about the, the, the identity of the companies, the size of the dip, the terms of the dips, the business the companies were in, the size of the debt and equity of the companies, uh, providence of these companies. Mr. Novick, that, uh, Mr. I, Mr. Novick don't, I, I certainly don't mean to interrupt you, but it was a do you wish to make inquiry? I think you said no, and I think that's where it ends. We're still in an evidentiary mode. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Anyone else have any questions for Mr. Neal? All right, Mr. Neal, I don't want you to I don't want you to leave the hearing, but you are excused for the time being as a witness. Thank you, sir. All right, are we back? So let me ask. We've still got to put uh, Mr. Orlowski on. Is it is now the appropriate time? I'm not trying to dictate your presentation manner, but what is the debtor intent on doing next? Um, let me just consult with Mr. Green. I suppose I can, Your Honor, if that works. Of course. Um, I would say that it probably makes sense, better place the landlords have the questions for Mr. Olofsky. I don't know if Mr. Novick does as well, but since we're kind of on the evidentiary part of this, why don't we take the evidence and then... It makes sense. It makes sense to me because otherwise we're going to get two different sets of arguments, uh, and I would prefer just have one. All right. Uh, could we get set up for Mr. Orlovsky? Uh, yes, sir. All right. Orlovsky, can you just confirm for me that you can hear me? Yes, I can. All right, thank you. If you would, please, sir, if you would raise your right hand. Do you swear or affirm the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. All right, thank you. All right, we have admitted Mr. Orlovsky's declaration, which, again, is on the docket at 11, and if memory serves, I think it was 26-1. Is that correct? Yes, sir. All right. Before before we submit Mr. Olofsky for cross, is there any additional direct that the debtor wishes to adduce? No, Your Honor. All right. Mr. Gold, would you like to go first? Yes, please, Your Honor. Thank right. you. Thank you. Um, do, you need, do you need presentation control or you, is it all Q&A? It's all Q&A. The only document I'll be referring to for everyone's reference is the budget attached to Mr. Orlovsky's uh, declaration, which appears at exhibit at docket 11, and that is exhibit C. Right. If it My would, questions regarding that will be brief. It, of course, if it's helpful, I'm happy to put it up for you. If you don't need it, fine, too. If, uh, I, I would be privileged to have Your Honor be the presenter to put that single page up on the screen. <laughs> Uh, I got a 
to say that, so it's not so inviting. All right. Let me... uh, Judge Isker, uh, highly, highly commends your technical skills, Your Honor. So, um... it, it, it is it's, uh, page 260 of 260, so it's fortunate that you can see. Sure. Literally I'm... the final page. I'm waiting for it to load. Uh, Mr. Gold, if you have some intro, I will put it up just as soon as it loads. I do. As soon as it loads on my screen. Thank you again, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Orlowski, my name is Ivan Gold. I represent a number of the debtors' um, landlords. Um, I'd like to ask you some questions about January rent. Um, is it true that the debtor paid some but not all of January's rent? That is correct. And what was the methodology or selection process by which you chose what stores to pay and what stores not to pay? So we re-evaluated the lease portfolio, um, and we tried to find um, a couple things. We were uh, in, in a liquidity uh, enhancement mode, so we're trying to figure out which how we could extend our liquidity. So some land, some landlords we were going to pay, some lands we were going to hold off. Um, and we took um, a measured judgment on some certain properties. So there were some obvious ones, ones that were like dark stores, closed stores. Those were not going to be paid January, right? Um, some other ones, you know, based on the terms of the lease, you know, where the, where the, the property was located and the state laws that relate to that, we decided to pay some of those. Um, and then other ones we kind of held off and kind of saw what happened. So, kind of, how um, so then, and I wanted, for purpose of my questioning, explicitly exclude the um, closed stores. Um, you have a rejection motion that's on file that identifies 28 locations that were uh, closed pre-petition. I clearly want to exclude those from my questioning. So with respect to stores, as we sit here today that are open and operating, if I understand you, you, you looked at state law like Texas where lockouts can be quick and... Did Texas leases get paid? Yes. Okay. And were there any other states that you decided on a, a kind of a state law basis that landlords' remedies are quicker here so that we're more at risk? Yeah, I, I, I don't have the whole list in front of me, but other states, and I'm not the expert state law of this kind of issue, but I would say similar situated states that had similar issues. Um, you know, we tried to pay them. Now, um, what, either in percentage or dollar terms, how much did you pay and how much did you not pay? We ended up paying about $9 million, and we ended up not paying about 12 dollars Okay. And so you've helped me out here as we, as we move our way towards the budget is nine and twelve and a half is twenty one and a half even I can do that math and that right. is for purposes of our discussion today the monthly brick and mortar uh, rent obligation for the chain as it exists today yes I mean I'm not sure if you can't sell estate and all the other but that's kind of we view it as that's the facility that's the payment that we make on a monthly basis Okay. Now, I don't want to break out. I don't want to say what's rent, what's CAM, what's insurance. I don't want to do that. I assume your $21.5 approximate answer 
is inclusive of all monthly accruing lease obligations. Whatever, yeah, it's whatever's whatever cash rent we pay on a monthly basis. That's what you know. Aggregates up to. So then nine was paid. Twelve and a half was not. So uh, with I, respect I, to. Was there an objection? I, I, it, maybe it was 11 and a half. I, I maybe I got my math before I wrong. Okay. Was, well, approximations are fine for purposes of, of this discussion. Um, if you could look at the budget, which is now up on the screen, or if you have it handy attached to your declaration, as counsel has identified, it's the last page of your declaration. And we see that 21 million and change number appearing in week three under the category facilities including leases. Do you see that? Yep. So that's the general number we're talking about, is about 21 million. And is it fair to say that I see this same number, 21 approximately, in the first week of each month for the life of the budget? Is that correct? Is there any place in this budget for the catch-up payment for January rent, either in its entirety or the prorated post-petition portion of January? No. So if the debtor went to assume leases as part of a plan on exit, where in the budget are those cure costs provided for? So to the extent that the leases are cured, because some of these leases may not be cured, to the extent they are, they would be part of an exit financing. So they're not in the budget, you're saving that for the exit financing. Correct. And then is it fair to say that there is no provision over the five-month life of this budget to pay any portion of what is generically referred to as stubborn, that being the post-petition portion, if you will, of January the 17th through the 31st. There's no provision anywhere in the budget for that. Is that correct? Uh, correct. Um, can you explain, in, in, in broad strokes or fine, what is the basis for the weekly the variations in that facilities figure, um, we see payments in between the first of the month. Is that timing issues with respect to specific leases, or are there other issues at play there? That uh, and I'll pick just by way of example. You've got 21. You're 21 million in week seven, the first week of March, and then you have the next four weeks varying much smaller numbers. Uh, yeah, what is the basis for those variations? Yeah, these are kind of, uh, there may be some payments that are off, off like the first of the month or some other charges that come through. Um, they're not the bulk of the payments. I mean, the bulk of the payments are the ones you've identified the, at the beginning of the month um, where, we, where, the, where these go out. These are fairly small charges um, that fluctuate. I couldn't tell you what each one is you know, without looking at the budget in more detail. But to your understanding, they're either timing variations or at least specific variations. Correct. Okay. Now, 
Were you part of the team that looked at other better-in-possession financing packages to determine whether what was being proposed here was comparable? I mean, that was – I was part – the whole – all of the advisors were part of the process. I myself did not look at if comps, if that was your question. Well, I'll take it on a broader – were you part of any discussion that involved covenants rather than economic terms? Were the terms of the dip in terms of specific asks from the lender comparable to the other dip financing packages you were looking at? Were you involved in that process? So, I think we need to clarify something. I was actively involved in this dip negotiation and the covenants related to this dip process. The other dips that I think Mr. Kyle was referring to, I don't think ever got to the point where we were negotiating covenants for this level. Okay. Well, let's talk about this dip. Do you know what a 506C waiver is? I've heard the term a lot, but I try not to practice law without a license, so I'll let the others hear. Okay. I'll just say in this forum, not particularly this one in Houston, but there are a lot of people who don't have that governor on their engine, so I appreciate your answer. With respect to this particular dip and your involvement, were you personally involved in discussion of a waiver of the debtor's right to surcharge or a waiver of Bankruptcy Code Section 506C and the remedies under that section, the right to go back against the lender potentially for certain charges? Do you recall being involved in any of those discussions personally? I was not, and if I was, I probably wouldn't have understood all this nomenclature, but I'll leave that to you. Okay. So then, is it fair to say that over 50% of the store rent, rent being rent and triple net charges for the month of January, was not paid? Yeah, that's correct. That's accurate. Okay. So I want to set 23 aside. I want to talk about 22. In terms of as of year end, what was in the aggregate, what was approximately debtor's aggregate unpaid rent obligation? At the end of 2022, December 31st, 2022, I don't know what was unpaid. Most of the rent was paid in January. If you're getting at what December rent was unpaid, I think if that's your question, is that what you're getting at? I'm not necessarily limited to December, but I think you and I can agree in general terms that the debtor did not have a history of broad defaults in 22. I'm asking, is it less than a million dollars? Is it less than $5 million? Just in general terms. Just the aggregation of the dogs and cats. Counselor, I understand your question. I think the answer is we had paid, we were pretty current and had been pretty current on all rent payments up until January. I don't know what the exact amount was, but it probably wasn't. It was nowhere near close to where it is at the petition date, if that's where you're going. That's helpful. 
Your Honor, that's all I have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Orlowski. Mr. Novick, did you have any questions for Mr. Orlowski? Just a couple, if I may, please. Of course. Let me ask, would you like me to leave the budget up, or would you like me to get rid of it? I don't need the budget up there, thanks. All right. Thank you. Mr. Orlowski, the anagram entities have not filed petitions, Chapter 11 petitions. Is that correct? That is correct. And is it also correct that the reason they haven't filed is because they believe they can – are those entities – to your understanding? I've not done a solvency analysis, if that's your question. Do you believe the equity of those entities has value? I've not valued those companies. Do you understand the equity of those companies is pledged to the fixed secured note holders? I understand that the equity is pledged to one of the bondholder groups. I'm not sure which one of those bondholder classes holds the – has the guarantee, but I understand there's a difference. One has it and one doesn't. Okay. Thank you. That's all the questions I have. Thank you. Any – Mr. Ruff, I can't remember if I circled through you or not. Do you have any questions for Mr. Orlowski? I do not, Your Honor, and I appreciate you asking. Thank you. Thank you. Debtor, have any redirect – or Mr. Scheibel, I didn't mean to ignore you either. Did you have any questions? No, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. Any redirect for Mr. Orlowski? If I may, just one moment, Your Honor. Sure. Your Honor, while we're waiting for that, could I just ask one question? Of whom? Oh, of Mr. Orlowski. Certainly. This is very dangerous. I have an embarrassing experience where I tried to cross-examine a witness before Judge Shannon once, and it didn't go well. Luckily, this is just a clarification question. Mr. Orlowski, not being a lawyer, you haven't reviewed the documents and have no independent knowledge about whether one of the series of notes has a lien and one of them doesn't, do you? And you'd really need to rely on lawyers to tell you that? Correct. I've not examined it. I just heard through the various conversations I've had that that exists, but I've not looked at it. And would you be surprised if that various conversation turns out to be incorrect based on an actual legal analysis? It wouldn't surprise me. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Orlowski. And, Mr. Novick, thank you for not objecting to Mr. Scheibel's leading question. Any redirect from the debtor? In light of Mr. Scheibel's question. All right. Thank you. All right. Mr. Orlowski, I certainly, again, same request. You are excused as a witness, but please don't leave the hearing. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. All right. With that, let me ask Mr. Novick, did you intend on offering any testimonial evidence uh, to support your uh, objections? No, we don't have a witness today. All right. Thank you. All right. Anyone else wish to offer any testimonial or documentary evidence? All right. Then I'll consider the evidence closed with respect to the debtor's motion to approve the DIP. Let me ask, uh, debtor wish to make any closing remarks with respect to the motion? Uh, yes, Your Honor. I'm going to turn the podium over to my colleague, uh, Michael Turcotte. Certainly. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. And I, I guess these could be both opening and closing remarks since we, uh, we just got started with the motion. But the first item on the agenda is a motion that I guess needs no introduction, which is the debtor's motion for approval of post-petition financing and use of cash collateral, which is on uh, number 10 on the docket. <clears throat> Your Honor, I won't go through all of the remarks because at this point, Your Honor, has heard a lot about the motion and a lot about the debt. I'll try to be brief, but I, I just want to hit some key highlights if it's all right with Your Honor. The debtors are seeking approval of the $150 million in tip financing, backstopped by the ad hoc notable group and available to all personally in lenders. In addition, the debtors are seeking use of cash collateral on consensual cases. <clears throat> Just a, a few salient terms of the dip that I would like to summarize for your honor because I think that they got lost in some of the back and forth or certainly they did what I heard about the back and forth. First, on the terms themselves, which most of which were used in testimony, the, before, we, before we go into the actual details and the numbers, I want to highlight a recurring element that runs through the facility, which is that no cash fees are payable by the debtors at closing. Not a dollar. Now, this is kind of a double-edged sword because your honor heard a lot back and forth about equitization options you can talk about, but the, the reality is that the $150 million facility, 75 of which will be available upon, upon approval of the interim order, all of that is available to debtors. There's no fees, that, there's no cash component that comes out, netting of fees. And, and that, that's pretty important. I think when you were, you were discussing with Mr. Scheibel earlier, you said that this is, you know, you, you understood this is a very simple middle-of-the-road financing. And I think that's why you don't have a lot of these that, that way down the company very early on in the case. So I think that's a really important component. I think it got lost in some of the discussion of what's going to happen in the future in a contemplated equity write-off right, that hasn't been determined yet. <clears throat> the, as you also heard, Your Honor, the debt loans are secured by prime liens on the collateral of the pre-petition first lien note holders, but the debt liens are junior the liens of the ABL lenders with respect to the ABL collateral. And that's important, Your Honor, because there's approximately $407 million of outstanding amounts on the ABL. <clears throat> the dip loans, as you heard, also, Your Honor, have a five-month maturity with an, extent, with an optional extension for a 3% fee, which fee is payable in time. <clears throat> Again, 
8% commitment fee, which, again, is deferred to the end, and it's payable on the earlier of the consummation of the plan or <clears throat> termination of the debt. It is not payable today. And in addition, interest does not accrue from today until it becomes payable. All of these are negotiated points. All of these are critical to ensure that the debtors get what they really need out of the debt, which is liquidity. In addition, Your Honor, you also heard there's no rule that the, the debt itself, which we talked about, very expensive economics, but the debt itself is available to all persons and holders. Your Honor, heard a lot about a backstop ring. <clears throat> which, as Your Honor has heard, takes the form of an option. So just, I just want to emphasize that. In our Plan A scenario, which is confirmation of a plan, the backstop premium is not a 10% premium. It is an option for the backstopping parties to convert their dip loans into, into equity at a contemplated rights offering at a future date. If the debt terminates, that fee is instead payable in cash. And again, Your Honor, I want to talk that. <clears throat> Your Honor, I also wanted to very briefly summarize the key concessions, the key terms that we reached with our ABL lenders, which you didn't hear much about. But we did, we did achieve some very, very significant points with respect to our negotiations for consensual use of cash collateral. The ABL will be maintained as a pre-position obligation and is not being rolled up. The ABL lenders will receive a cash interest at the non-default rate with a reservation of rights as, as to whether the default rate, the, the default rate should be included as a portion of their allowed claim. In addition, the debtors have agreed to adequately protect the ABL lenders, and I think you heard Mr. Graff earlier in his opening remarks say that they're perfectly adequately protected, which is, I think, a great achievement, by funding any shortfall in the borrowing base during the cases into a cash collateral account held by the ABL agent, with any excess cash withdrawal, withdrawable by the debtors. <clears throat> in terms of the basis for the relief, Your Honor, just to remember why we're here today, the debtors have an acute and immediate liquidity need, given the limited cash on hand, and the enormous near-term cost that they face. As shown in the budget, which I didn't realize we were going to have on the screen and spend a deep, deep, deep dive into, but I can just say, Your Honor, very briefly, the shortfall is quick. If we do not get interim liquidity, liquidity that was hard fought and negotiated for, we will not have the funds necessary to do what we do best, to pay and to honor their employees, to honor certain vendor obligations, and to continue operating in the ordinary course. <clears throat> in short, the dip is the lifeblood of the company during, during Chapter 11 cases. And it also represents the first lien note holders for the ad hoc groups down payment on the debtor's business plan, and given the potential equitization allows for, and the fees that the first came on, a leveraged life solution at a time when the debtors needed most. The release the debtors are seeking is exactly what is contemplated by Section 
364C and D of the Bankruptcy Code, which, Your Honor, I did not hear anything talked about. I didn't hear any legal discussion as to whether inclusion in a group or non-inclusion in a group has anything to do with the standards that support in Section 364. But this SIP does satisfy those standards. Your Honor, I will say that the order memorializes a number of agreements reached between the debtors, the SIP lenders, and their pre-petition ADL lenders. It also memorializes a number of agreements as between the debtors, the aforementioned parties, and the U.S. trustee. And in addition, there are a few changes to the order that I believe we've agreed to with respect to the landlord parties. And I know it does not address all of their concerns. I think the one concern that's still outstanding, Your Honor, it won't surprise you, has something to do with 506C. And I'll just take a brief moment to talk about why I think that that waiver, as it exists in paragraph 9 of the order, is still appropriate. Your Honor, that paragraph begins with the word, or something to the effect of the word, subject to the carve-out. Your Honor, as you know, the carve-out and 506C are deeply interrelated concepts. In fact, courts have long recognized that, in a certain sense, the carve-out that allows for these cases to run efficiently is exactly what was contemplated by 506C surcharge. And waiving 506C, the debtor's right to the 506C charge, in a situation in which there is a carve-out is completely appropriate. The language that we included at the proviso, at the end of paragraph 9, states, without prejudice to any provisions of the final order with respect to the cost or expenses incurred following the entry of such final order. So we are not trying to prejudice what may happen in the final order. What we are saying is, during the interim period, given that the carve-out is being funded and exists, it is appropriate during that period, subject to additional review with respect to the final order, it is appropriate during this interim period for these waivers to be included in paragraph 9 as they are subject to the carve-out. Your Honor, with that, I don't know if Your Honor has any specific questions for me. I know that there are some additional ideas that need to be hit on, but I'll just have to read the generation. Oh, I think I'm just fine. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. The point that I am supposed to briefly circle back on is that the backstop premium, just to be clear, is only on amounts outstanding at the termination date. So just to circle back on what I mentioned before, the backstop premium triggers, it is an option, right, but it is also, it is a cash fee, as we heard. It could be a cash fee, 10% of the $150 million, you got the $15 million. It could be a cash fee in certain circumstances, but that amount that it is a percentage of is only on the amounts that are outstanding at the date that the termination occurs. So it's a little bit different than how it was characterized in some of the backstops. In fact, on a 10% on it, if there's only 75, if we're talking about the interim relief that's being sought today, which is only $75 million, in the hypothetical that was raised during testimony before Your Honor of a meltdown during the interim period, it would not be a $15 million fee. It would, in fact, be a $7.5 million fee. Your 
So if your honor doesn't have any questions for me, I, I would I would ask that the order with with the with the changes agreed to with the landlord. Um, and, and if your honor would find it helpful, I'm happy to walk through the specific paragraph uh, to be approved. <laughs> And I did, there is one question I do have for you. Just want to make very sure that the the amount that's available at interim is seventy five and not eighty, right? Exactly right, Your Honor. So the in the motion itself, in the first bullet point of paragraph one, where it says eighty, that's just a typo. You really meant seventy five, right? That's exactly right as well, Your Honor. Just. I do read these things. Thank you. Mr. Scheibel, any closing comments? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, Your Honor, let me, let me take Mr. Novick's arguments and, and, and address them in three buckets, and then, um, and then let me take Mr. Gold's argument um, at the end, because it's a topic that's near and dear to both my and your heart after a number of cases where we discuss it. Um, so so the, the first off, the fir first, in order to understand the equitization element of the backstop fee, there's a couple of points that we need to not lose sight of. First, it's important to know that, 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 that we are not seeking to, and we are not, tying this court's hands with respect to the equitization uh, element, we are not tying the debtor's hands. We're not preordaining any plan terms. Nothing in any of the documents is intended to pre-legislate any terms of a plan. The debtors are free to file whatever plan they want. They can file a plan that doesn't include a rights offering, and then that aspect of the backstop is, or the backstop is completely irrelevant and valueless or they can file a plan with a rights offering that doesn't comply with the terms of the credit agreement. It's just an agreement. It's an agreement by the debtors and, uh, and the backstopping note holders that the debtors can breach or seek your honor's approval to, to modify. Um, it, it's all in your honor's hands. I've spent many, 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 uh, many periods of time uh, working very carefully with your honor through the uh, remedies provision that I hope to never use in the dip order, you will you will note that that remedies provision is word for word the Judge Jones approved remedies provision. And so if the debtors decided to flagrantly violate their credit agreement and do a plan that included a rights offering and not offer it, we would just be trying out those remedies provisions for the first time. But it's not your honor approving any equitization today, approving any plan today, and importantly, all parties will have the opportunity to object at the time. And the provision is designed, as I think was mentioned previously, to simply say whatever the rights offering uh, discount and terms are that are ultimately approved by the court on full notice, they have the ability to, rather than taking cash in full, to effectively pre-fund rights offering for those dollars. But, right. but no determination is being made today with respect to what the value of that is, if any, and all parties' rights will be reserved. And in fact, Your Honor, paragraph 30 of the dip order like, like puts, uh, puts lipstick on the pig in making clear specifically that notwithstanding anything in any of the documents, um, all of the transactions shall be subject to the court's approval at the confirmation hearing for any Chapter 11 plan with respect to the equitization options. So, so let, me, let me ask you, let me ask you one question. 
So yes. uh, Mr. Novick raised many issues, and I do. I always believe that economic actors are going to act in their own economic self-interest. I, I rely upon that principle. It makes the world spin around, and I got exactly what Mr. Norvik's client is attempting to do. He's done an extremely good job with not a lot to work with. Uh, which that's just the mark of a good lawyer. Now, one of the issues that he did raise, which is something that I've been thinking about since I heard him make the argument, is that it's really hard to understand what I'm signing into. Now, I can make the argument that so long as everyone is treated equally, you know, those in control aren't going to do something that hurt their own self-interest. I, I have to believe that that's the case. However, given that's where, given where we are in the case, would you have an objection that if Mr. Norvik's client elects to sign the RSA and participate at you know, whatever his whatever his percentage would be, would you have an objection? because I'm telling you I'm thinking about it anyway, but I'm going to ask. Would you have an objection to maintaining his ability at confirmation to raise any 1129A objection that might exist? Um, I'm trying to think through. Your Honor, can I, can I put you on mute for one second so I can confer? Absolutely, and I'll tell you what I do. That because that's the question, and and where I'm headed, I, I want to be very clear about this. Is the one thing that Mr. Norvik said was, we're not on the inside. I'll, I'll I accept that as I accept that as fact. I given the way that it's written, I can see changes being made that would be neutral or positive to your group that would be negative to his group that could potentially violate 1129. And if you simply agree that by signing on the RSA, he can still raise any 1129A issue that may exist at confirmation, you know, what I'll do with that, I don't know. It depends upon what the objection is. As you well know, some 1129 objections are personal, some are class-based, you know, all sorts of issues, but it just seems to me that in furtherance of transparency and trying to move the process along because, I mean, I will tell you if you haven't figured it out already, you know, I'm worried that this isn't enough money and I'm worried that the process isn't fast enough. And by giving Mr. Novick the opportunity to raise a confirmation objection at confirmation, that preserves that. He doesn't have to live on the defensive. He can talk to you. He can agree to disagree. He can agree to agree. And then at the point at which it becomes my issue, which is when you ask me to make the required findings under 1129, I can hear from him, as I would want to anyway, because my only goal is to ever get it right. So you, if you want to take a couple of minutes to talk to your team or perhaps even read a text from your client as to what does that mean, I, I certainly understand that. Um, your, 
Your Honor, can I, before I do that, can I ask a clarifying question? You're saying this would be just a carve-out from the RFA obligation such that they could object on that one limited ground of 1129A. In other words, they wouldn't be able to object to the rights offering. They wouldn't be able to object to otherwise the terms of the plan except with respect to that one limited, you know, if insiders are treating people differently than outsiders. No, this is, again, he's proven to me today that he's a knowledgeable, thoughtful lawyer. And if he's got an 1129 issue, whatever it might be, I mean, I really want to hear it. Because, again, I want to get it right. I don't want some issue to get raised for the first time on appeal that I didn't hear and to give me the ability to think through it and address it and understand the law and make those decisions. It just seems to me that it's just an easy give. And quite frankly, and Mr. Norvig knows this is coming, I listened to all of his statements. This puts him in a box because it gives him exactly what he wanted. I don't want to hide the ball at all. Right. So, Your Honor, just to clarify, you're saying that on any 1129 grounds, but only on 1129 grounds, they could object at the plan, at the confirmation hearing. And that would be a carve-out for Mr. Norvig's client from the RSA provisions. Yeah. And then he can make an economic choice as to whether or not, and I say him, his client can make an economic choice as to whether or not they want to participate. And you also, it comes down to, I mean, you have to think through this, right? Because he then has, his client then has a concerted interest in having the plan be confirmed. Unless there's, you know, you do the math and you figure out if it's a net plus or a net minus. I mean, if he doesn't sign on to it, then he can object anyway, right? If he signs on to it and becomes a participant, then he has an incentive for a plan to be confirmed because that's the only place that he recognizes the value that you get under the plan, right? Or am I missing something? No, no, you are. I guess I was going to say a couple of things. I was going to propose a slightly different Judge Jonesian solution here. But what I was going to propose, Your Honor, is that we're not asking Your Honor to approve our allocation procedures of our debt, right? We could have, and in many circumstances have in the past, as Your Honor knows from our numerous interactions, just done the dip ourselves and not required anyone to do anything and just done the dip ourselves. And I'm not aware, and Mr. Novick's very, very long series of arguments didn't list one single case or one single legal basis for being able to be part of a group that is providing a dip. So we could have just done it ourselves. You could have, and I'm one of those people that doesn't believe you have to offer it. Right. And we chose not to do it ourselves because we wanted to give people 
an opportunity, but from our perspective, the quid pro quo to that opportunity is that you're rowing along. And, and Your Honor, one of the points that Mr. Novick seemed to keep kind of assuming was that my clients are a monolith. They are not. I can promise you I bear the scars from their very different views. They're you. all agreeing to be dragged along by a majority. Here's the, here's the difference. And where I have seen you do this before and do it successfully, you could sit down with a calculator and you could figure out what this meant, assuming no change. As we sit here today, you can't figure out what any of this means. I mean, the debtor's own professionals acknowledge that you don't know Correct. what it means. And to the extent that there exists information that allows you to make educated guesses about some of this, you have that information. And Mr. Novick's client, at least based on what I've heard, doesn't. So there's a disparity in information. So you don't think that's right? No, I don't think that's right, Your Honor. To be clear, remember, Mr. Novick's client signed an NDA and received the exact same information weeks ago that the note holders received. Now every single piece of information that the note holders have received has been put out on an 8K publicly. So everyone is of the exact same position of information. There is no one currently who has more information than others. I have much less because I haven't read the whole 8K. So you're telling me that you haven't had any discussions about what a plan looks like or what valuations are going to be. You've had none of those discussions at all. Your Honor, advisors who are not Damien, in other words, Lazard, our financial advisor, may well have had discussions with the company's financial advisors. But as was discussed, a couple of things. First of all, they haven't shared any of that information with the note holders that wasn't claimed as part of the 8K. And secondly, all of those discussions would have to be preliminary and based on a business plan that's not done yet. And so the reality is no one knows. And, Your Honor, I guess what I would say is Mr. Novick has the ability to decide to not take part in the plan and has the ability to show up at the final BIP hearing and argue that the allocation was invalid and he has some legal entitlement to having been allocated BIP without having to sign up for the RSA. He has that ability to argue at the final BIP hearing because Your Honor is not giving us an order today that says we're allowed to allocate the BIP in this way. And so what he's trying to do is get his cake and eat it too. And what I'm worried about is that your proposed solution would give him his cake and eat it too. He doesn't have to agree to play along with everyone else. While my clients are agreeing to play along, any one of my clients can be dragged into a plan that they disagree with if a majority of the RSA parties agrees to proceed in a given situation. And he's just saying, no, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to be dragged along like the ad hoc group individual members could be dragged along. Instead, I want the ability to take advantage of all the work that they've done for weeks and months, take advantage of the commitments that they went to credit committees and supported for $150 million, take advantage of all the negotiations, all the documentation, all the everything else. His client's been talking to the debtors for months, has been restricted for weeks, hasn't delivered a single piece of paper, hired Mr. Novick this morning so he can come in and just say, hey, just see if you can get me into that sweet deal that these other parties work for. It's just inappropriate. He's welcome to take part in the trip. Mr. Scheibel, deep breath. I'm sorry. Deep breath. Deep breath. So I want you 
and I'm going to give you an opportunity to think about this. I want you to think about my comments. I am not confident at all that in the face of a big fight that you have enough money looking at the budget. I also think that delay has a huge cost to you. Do not think that what I propose, if you really think through 1129, I don't think it gives Mr. Torvik's client much at all. But if it's something that says he just doesn't deserve to be treated different, you started off before you hyperventilated. Uh, you started off by telling me that you had a different proposal. I haven't heard that yet. If you want to think about what I've said, and maybe I am missing something, um, but I don't generally miss that much, but I certainly let you think about it. Um, and if the answer is you just want me to rule straight up, I will rule straight up. You're entitled to that answer. just want you to think about what I think the goals are. You've got to get this done quickly, and you've got to get this done without an extra, I'm making this up, you know, an extra $25 million of legal cost on the bottom line. I don't know. So again, I, I appreciate everything you said, and I got it. I Conceptually, I think you're 100% right. I also think there's a practical issue here, and I also think of all the things that Mr. Norvig said, the one thing that I really sort of focused on is normally when you see this done, there's been a draft plan. There is a perhaps a an RSA that has more detail to it. I mean, normally you have more that you can look at and you can sit down with a calculator, which I do all the time. You know that. And I sit down and figure out what these things are worth. Can't do this with this right now, and I understand why. But I just think through that and decide if you really want to have the fight, I got it. And just tell me that. I, I will. You wanna, I, you I will, Your Honor. So no, one, I'll, I'll give you a couple of minutes. Let me let me finish making the circle, and I'll give you a couple of minutes. You may want to hear what Mr. Norvig has to say. Uh, you may want to decide that you want to talk to him offline for a couple of minutes. I don't know. Um, but let me make the circle, and then I'll come back, okay? Yes. Yes, Your Honor, of course. Thank you. All right. Uh, of course. Yes, sir. I apologize. I just do want to note that I wasn't sure I understood your honest proposal uh, that you made to Mr. Scheibel. So I, I think what you were saying was that Mr. Novick's client would come into the, the dip, would get the benefit of all the provisions. The way it's structured is that you come into the dip, let's just assume he doesn't have to be bound by the RSA in the same way that the other confirmation objection, which I don't think means very much. I think I told you that. But it's I'm using his own words against him. I want you to I mean, think through what he said. Listen to him. He put himself in a this is my 30 seconds, okay? 
I just want you to listen to what he said. He put himself in a box. You can choose to ignore it, and that's fine. Keep your eye on the end game. That's all, that's all I'm asking. Okay? Now, your turn. Thank you, I think I was just wanting to understand the only exception was otherwise in the agreement that your honor is proposing is that notwithstanding the support obligation of the RSA, his client would nonetheless have the opportunity to make an 1129 objection if they so chose to. Yes. That's it. Just wanted to make sure that it was, it was, it was as narrow that you were intending. I was, I was thinking more. About it. Nope, that that was it. Uh, Ms. Roglin, if I'm saying, if I'm pronouncing that right, I saw you pop on. Did you wish to make comments? And hold on, had you hit five star? Yes, you did. My apologies. Yes, can you hear me, Your Honor? Loud and clear. You should share your AirPods with everyone else. <laughs> so we'll include those in the landlord providing gift package. Um, we'll see if A and G starts asking for those in deals. Um, I am speaking first on behalf of the landlords this afternoon, so I wasn't sure if Your Honor was moving on from Mr. Novick or you wanted to turn to him first at this point. You're, you have you have the lectern. Please proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. For the record, Laurel Roslin from Ballard's Bar on behalf of Bricksmore Operating Partnerships and a number of other landlords owning a combined total of at least 61 of the debtor's locations so far. We have had an opportunity to review the proposed interim dip order and we did engage in discussion today with debtor's counsel and as you heard from Mr. Lehane and Mr. Turkel, we have resolved a number of our customary issues, as we so often do, without requiring the assistance of the court, which are all just subject to some final tweaks to a revised proposed order that was circulated just prior to the start of this hearing. The issues we raised are certainly not novel to this court or to the parties in interest because we've all been here before, and we appreciate the debtor's willingness to work through those issues with us here. So I really am surprised to report that we were unable to reach an agreement with respect to the first day 506 and 552B waiver, which was not included in Mr. Schabel's recitation of the vanilla dip terms early in this hearing. Those waivers are not subject to entry of a final order and would become effective immediately upon the entry of the interim order which I would note is contrary to the specific representation that's made in the disclosure chart in the dip motion that's required by the bankruptcy rules, which says it's subject to entry of a final order. Well, it may not mean as much coming from me as it would hearing it from some of my colleagues, Mr. Gold and Mr. Lehane, who I'm sure you'll also hear from shortly. I must say that I've never actually had to argue a 506 waiver before the court at a first day hearing because it is not standard release thought at a first day hearing. It is not market in connection with interim dip financing, and it unduly prejudices the rights of creditors, many of whom don't even know that they're creditors yet. Yes, a 506 waiver is a typical component of a dip financing package approved by a final order. However, at a first day hearing, on an expedited interim basis, the goal should be to maintain the status quo and reserve the rights and interests of all parties and interests to the maximum extent possible until all parties have actual notice, representation, and an opportunity to review and evaluate the financing documents, the budget, 
and what expenses are or are not captured by that budget. My understanding, based on my discussions with the debtors, is that the dip lenders in this case have been unwilling to agree that the standard arrangement with respect to the language in paragraph 9 of the interim order governing the 5060 waiver and 552B equities of the case waiver. This paragraph is missing the critical clause at the beginning, making it subject to and effective upon entry of a final order. The debtors' counsel made an argument before about how the 506B waiver being subject to the carve-out is somehow sufficiently capturing the essence of 506B in some way, but that is just not the case at all. While it may protect professional fees, all administrative claims are not included in the carve-out. Sub-rent is not included in the carve-out. Other post-petition rent is not included in the carve-out. There is some language at the end of paragraph 9 that mentions a final order, but that proviso only actually says that it's without prejudice to costs incurred by the estate after entry of the final order, which doesn't really address this issue at all or provide any comfort. Sub-rent is, by nature, incurred before the final order will be entered. Neither of the debtors' witnesses today testified to any negotiation, comparable, or justification for this particular, frankly, unusual discharge. Perhaps the court has experienced a dip lender seeking immediate waiver of these rights at the first day hearing over an objection, but this is a first for me. And there's a reason for that. Although this is standard relief on full notice at a final hearing, it is simply too early in the cases to make these decisions. The landlords do not have access to the credit agreement, haven't had an opportunity to evaluate and conduct diligence on the budget, to assess whether it includes sufficient amounts for all post-petition rent payments, aside from Mr. Bull's questioning of the witnesses today. Mr. Orlowski testified that approximately $11.5 million in January rent remains unpaid. And while the budget includes monthly post-petition rent starting in February, the post-petition portion of unpaid January rent is not in the budget. Based on Mr. Orlowski's numbers, the unpaid January rent for the post-petition sub-period is about $5.5 million. Mr. Orlowski testified that payment of that $5.5 million sub-rent is reliant on exit financing, which does not yet exist. So as we sit here today, there is no evidence the landlord's rights are adequately protected as required by Section 363E with respect to the use of the premises from the petition date through the end of January and in the subsequent post-petition month. The dip lender's insistence on this waiver at the first day hearing is curious. Who knows better than the dip lenders in this case the sufficiency or insufficiency of the debtor's financing budget to cover its administrative expenses? Are they so concerned that there's going to be a default before we can even get to a final order that would trigger a potential surcharge of their collateral? That frankly increases our concerns. If there is a risk of a surcharge in the interim period, that is all the more reason not to waive 5016 today. As presently drafted, if something unexpected happens and we never get to a final dip order, the lenders will have the benefit of 5016 waiver immediately, and there will be no ability to surcharge the dip lender's collateral to pay the administrative freight of these cases. This is a retail business. Substantially all of the collateral is being sold in our client's premises, and the debtors are open and operating in our premises as we speak. The landlords are directly protecting the value of and generating profits based on the sale of the dip lender's collateral in our premises. So the dip lender should be required to pay for the cost of the occupancy that endures directly to their benefit, not just put all that risk of potential failure on the landlord, 
maybe we'll get paid their administrative expenses someday if it's provided for in some hopeful future exit facility, which not even the dip lenders or ad hoc note holders have committed to provide under the RSA. Your Honor mentioned that you are concerned that this dip may not be enough money for this case, depending on what happens here, and we share that concern, which was borne out in Mr. Arlovsky's testimony today with respect to the lack of budgeting of subrents. The rights the debtors are asking the court to waive today are precisely the rights designed and put into the bankruptcy code specifically to protect the interests of creditors providing post-petition goods and services to the debtors. Those rights should not be waived on an expedited basis prior to the formation of a creditor's committee to evaluate these issues on behalf of all creditors. The simple solution here is the one that has been reached in virtually every case, which is to make these provisions subject to and effective upon entry of a final order. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Happy to answer any questions. Nicely done. Mr. Ruff, what's U.S. Trustee's view of the world on this? Your Honor, we agree with what was just stated by Ms. Ruffman. I don't think I can say it any better. Thank you. Mr. Scheibel? Your Honor, a couple of points. First of all, this is language that has been agreed with this court in numerous cases in the past, including, Your Honor, in several, Talent Energy, Basic Energy, Washington Prime, Chesapeake, to name a few. The intent here is, as mentioned when I was talking about the dip, it has nothing to do with the landlords in particular. We're not impacting their administrative claims to the extent they exist. But you have dip lenders who have rushed onto the scene to provide capital and to provide collateral in an emergency situation with not a tremendous amount of information. And it's a completely different thing to say that for the benefit of having done that, for keeping everything alive, for keeping the lights on, for the benefit of the landlords as well as for the benefit of everyone else, their dip collateral could be surcharged beyond the carve-out amount. And so, as I've discussed with Your Honor, when it has been objected to in several cases in the past, the point here is it's not prejudicing the final order at all. Your Honor will have the ability to have people make briefing and have it considered at the final order. But between now and the final order stage, we don't have to worry about the money that's being funded effectively being used by the estate to operate the business and then have their collateral surcharged on top of that during this interim period. So we're only talking about during the interim period. So again, Your Honor, I think it's wholly appropriate. It's a right of the debtors. The trustee may surcharge. And the debtors have made a business judgment decision that they are willing to forego that right for the interim period. And in exchange, we have agreed to fund $160 million of dip money to keep the lights on and keep the stores operating for the benefit of the landlords as well. So I think it's incumbent upon the objectors to overcome the debtors' business judgment in this way using language that is intended to be very specific and very limited and giving people the opportunity to argue about it on full briefing at the final order stage if they need to. May I respond to that, Your Honor? Who was that? Was that Mr. Gold? It is, Your Honor. Absolutely. Any chance I could get you to turn your camera on? Absolutely. 
There you are. Thank you again, Your Honor. I've enrolled for a number of landlords, and I certainly don't want to repeat the arguments from my friend and colleague, Mr. Rockland. I just want to emphasize one point. The language in paragraph 9 that the lender and debtor are trying to convince you, oh, it really solves the problem, absolutely does not. It leaves a gaping hole because it uses a temporal limitation. Basically, what Mr. Scheibel is not correct, that this is going to be argued at the final because the language in the order, as they propose, that everything that happens up until the final, the waiver exists. So we would be at the second day hearing arguing future protection, not what's occurring today, tomorrow, and the next day for the remainder of the month of January. And he is on an emergency basis wiping out legitimate, statutorily-based landlord claims for adequate protection for that time period. There is no carve-out that includes the rent. We have the right to come in at some stage, potentially. Obviously, leases are assumed. It becomes moot as to those leases. But there could be a class of landlords who has the ability to assert an administrative claim for the continuing use and occupancy of the premises during this period prior to the entry of the final order. And the language cuts it off because the 506C waiver has written... How does it cut it off, Mr. Gold? It just simply says that the debtor is waiving its right to surcharge. That landlord, if they're entitled to an administrative claim, they still have an administrative claim which has to be paid before a plan could be confirmed. I mean, you also have rights... And in the... Still my 30 seconds. There's also the issue that we really haven't talked about, which is you have a huge hammer. You could tomorrow file that emergency motion to compel assumption or rejection, and you change the world. The issue is, do you want to do that at this point? I mean, you have all sorts of leverage that you haven't yet exercised. Well, just like we heard from other constituencies in the case, Your Honor, I don't know that, as I sit here today, I have enough information about where the debtor is going to make that motion tomorrow and do it with a straight face. Yes, we have ECF access, and we have a code, and could certainly file something. That doesn't mean it's timely, meritorious, or appropriate. What we're saying is that those claims exist today, and the debtor's ability to fund them is being cut off. It is... There are other aspects of the budget that benefit other similarly situated administrative creditors. The law is clear. The court is not supposed to set up separate categories of admin creditors. And yes, that's usually enforced at the plan stage. But here we are on less than 24 hours' notice, where literally clients are hiring me as this hearing is going on. They don't know what's happening. They're picking up regular media of full-party city filed for bankruptcy and don't understand the full consequences. And what is being proposed cuts off rights or limits remedies to parties who don't even know this is going on. So is it your belief that one of your clients could file a 506C motion? No, it is in the... How is it a right of theirs that's being cut off? 
it is the right to make an admin claim motion or an adequate protection motion. No, it and doesn't. And have the court have the ability to grant, wait, it's, it's, second half of that, Your Honor, is, and to have the court grant meaningful relief. If the debtor is administratively insolvent, my motion is worth the paper it's printed on. Yeah, that's not entirely true because if the lawyers can't get paid, things get done. The lawyers have a carve-out, Your Honor. They can get paid. Yeah, okay. Thank you. The lawyers have a carve-out. At this stage, this is a discussion, this is a great discussion, Your Honor, for the final, but at this point, the lawyers have protected themselves because they're in the carve-out that's referenced in paragraph 9. So if this case melts down two weeks from now, the lawyers are protected. The landlords are not. We do not have the opportunity for meaningful relief before the final because it's simply not in the budget. It's not intended to be in the budget, so the funds aren't available. And Your Honor said, I counted three times, you have concerns that there's not enough in the budget. So you are creating risk that is not market. I could rattle off energy cases too, but I'm going to rattle off retail cases. How about Cineworld just a couple weeks ago in front of Judge Isker? How about cases in front of Your Honor like JCPenney in 2020? So don't weigh 506C at the interim stage. It's a consistent position of the United States trustee, and it's a consistent position of landlords, and frankly, it's a consistent position of judges. It's too early to write that part of the script and tie hands without full notice, full briefing, full argument. All right. Thank you. Mr. Lehane, did you wish to be heard? Well, thank you, Your Honor. And first of all, Mr. Scheibel, it's good to see you again, and I know he's very passionate about these issues, and obviously Ms. Roglin and Mr. Gold have laid it out very clearly. Just want to remind the Court, 506C was designed to protect the unsecured creditors who, as a body, are not yet represented here. And it was designed, and the Fifth Circuit said this in Borrego Springs Bank, the bankruptcy code protects unsecured creditors from bearing the cost of liquidating secured creditors' collateral, and that's exactly what would be happening here, because the stores are open and operating now, and there is unpaid rent at those stores, and this waiver would prevent the unsecured creditors from ever surcharging that rent, which is not part of the carve-out, right, against that collateral. And the unsecured creditors' body really doesn't get to address this issue until a committee is formed. And this has to be weighed in connection with 363E, and the landlords certainly are entitled to adequate protection under 363E, right? It's unquestionable. That's been established. And here, there is no adequate protection for that period. This provision, which I agree with Mr. Gold and Ms. Roglin, is not market for a retail bankruptcy case, precisely because there is so much activity. Eighty percent of the debtor's revenue is generated in retail stores. That revenue is being generated now, and we heard testimony and evidence today that there is unpaid rent at those stores for this specific period, from January 17th to January 31st. After that, 365D3 kicks in, and the landlords have adequate protection. This is the stub period, and it's not that large a number. It's not insignificant. Certainly, $35,000 to, you know, the owners of the store in Massapequa, New York, is significant. 
But in a larger context of the case, it's not that great. This would not be a market provision, and we appreciate Your Honor's attention to this. We also look forward to the opportunity to have these conversations with Mr. Scheibel and the folks at Paul Weiss to try to work through adequate protection and a reasonable solution to this government issue, which we are able to do in virtually every case. This would be a real outlier, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Mr. Novick? Thank you, Your Honor. I listened loud and clear to the Court's thoughts, and I think I can narrow my comments at this point to try to accommodate them and narrow the issues. First, with a step back, it's not the case that Mudrick has been standing outside looking to throw bombs and extract undue value. Mudrick has tried to get under the steering committee the consenting lender tent. Apparently, the debtors had no problem with that, but the lenders did. So that's their prerogative for who they let in, who they don't. No question about that. But to cast certain implications that we're just standing around not doing the work, looking to blow things up and extract value, that's far from the case. And I think the debtors would say that was far from the case, too, but I could put words in their mouths. Quick comment about the backstop, the premium that maybe can cut through some of this. So against my initial judgment, I cross-examined the witness because one of the open issues was how the backstop fee is calculated. He gave what I thought was pretty clear testimony, and then a full wise attorney came in and contradicted it. If it's the case that on an interim basis the backstop fee only applies on the interim draw, then let's make that clear in the documents. That was the last word I heard on it, although I've seen multiple different things in the documents. It is a little bit fallacious to say, well, we're not paying it now because we're approving it now. You get the right to collect it later. And that's baked in on January 18th. Now, much as we thought this was really a non-market fee that wasn't providing value to the debtors, at least the 10% fee is a known amount and has a cap. The real problem is the alternative, where the backstop fee, together with the rest of the debt, can be exchanged for new equity at completely unknown terms. And I think there's a solution to that, which is that the backstop fee can be exchanged for $15 million of equity. They should not have an option to get a $15 million cash fee or some equity exchange that maybe is worth $20 or $30 or $50 million. And the court shouldn't be approving something that is that open at this time. I recognize the parties could disagree on value, what the securities are worth, what the debtor is worth. These things happen. But if the court were to say, well, I'm approving a $15 million fee or the equivalent in an equity conversion, then we would have something that actually makes sense that looks like dips we've seen before, rather than it's a $15 million fee or some equity conversion that people can go negotiate in the future, and it's all pre-approved today on January 18th. So I think that's the solution to this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Novick. Thank you, Mr. Kaplan. The court will reserve decision.
So I think that's that's an important change that protects not just Mudrick, but the entire estate and the entire fairness of the process. As for what the court characterized as a box, I think that actually goes a long way towards preventing us from waiving rights. One of the points that the Lenders Council made was that nothing is baked yet. The plan is still to be negotiated. And that's not really a point that helps them. It's a point that I'm making that we shouldn't be required to consent to and agree to support a plan that's not negotiated. Preserving 1129 objections is certainly helpful at a minimum. In addition, I believe that Mudrick should have creditor suffrage preserved as well and have the ability to vote against the plan if the plan turns into something that is not fair and equitable economically to the outside, the people outside the tent, especially since sometimes voting for a plan effectively waives some of your objections. And forcing us to vote in favor of a plan might undercut even the rights to object to it under 1129. But if that's the direction things are going, then I believe preserving those additional rights are really, you know, it's a fundamental to the process that nobody should be required to either give up economic rights by foregoing the chance to participate in the dip, even as a second-class citizen not getting the backstop, or give up their procedural rights and sign on to whatever plan other people propose without knowing what it is. I think that's basic bankruptcy due process, and I think protecting a few of the rights to object and the voting rights makes things a lot more equitable than it otherwise could be. And that's just it. We're not looking to tie anybody's hands. We're not looking for better treatment than anybody else is getting. There's certain people getting better economics than is being offered to other parties now. It's our hope that with a level playing field, the parties will continue discussions and reach terms where people are compensated for whatever additional benefits and services they provide to the estate at a fair and market level. And not above that, that comes at the expense of other creditors. And again, information, there was a little pushback on how we phrase things, but the information that was released, we did do an NDA, Mudrick did an NDA and got a lot of information, and the information as of a week and a half ago changed very significantly to the information that was filed with the court early this morning and last night. The size of the dip changed, the size of the professional fees changed. Many things didn't even match the information. And the objection I raised is that the RSA seems to anticipate a further business plan and other materials being developed and not being shared outside the scope of the people who are involved. So again, with Sunshine being the disinfectant, the best disinfectant, providing information to everybody on an equal basis would go a long way to resolving objections and probably ultimately to driving a deal if everybody's looking at the same paper. 
and maybe we can come in here holding hands a couple months from now, which would, which would be, uh, you know, probably the best thing for everybody. So that's without repeating and getting into the, the, uh, the weeds on, on points that I believe the court fully grasped without me reiterating them. Those are the key takeaways. We, we need some meaningful ability to object, uh, if, and not be forced to support and sign on to plan terms that we've never been informed about or uh, give up valuable economic rights. Um, we need some fairness with the uh, equitization of the dip, including in particular the backstop fee. Not you can get $15 million of some security, which may be worth much more than $15 million. Maybe people will debate whether it's worth more than $15 million or less than $15 million, but you're the court's being asked to pre-approve uh, a blank check. Whatever the parties agree on, that's that's pre-approved. And on top of that, anybody who uh, participated in the dip has to live with it. So there are safeguards and guardrails here that can, can result in a measured process, a process that uh, goes forward on a more or less level playing field, uh, one that doesn't force people to waive rights that they have under the code early on in the case at a time when there's been no disclosure, very, very little notice, less than 24 hours, maybe less than 12 hours, I think you've got the math on that, and uh, and get tied up for uh, the rest of the case. It's more, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people come in and complain about sub-ROSA plans. This is worse because it's a sub-ROSA plan to be named later. And uh, this, this is not something that comports with the protections of the bankruptcy code and, and due process. So those are those are my closing remarks. And subject to any colloquy, the uh, the court wishes. Right. Thank you. Debtor want to respond? Your Honor, um, I don't know what. I think Mr. Scheibel actually had quite a. I personally respond first, and I'll reserve the following, if that's okay. Mr. Sutton? No one ever left me come first. Um, th thank you. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Healy, for, for a first. Um, I, 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 a couple things, Your Honor. I, I, I guess, um, um, first, I'll reconfirm what, what, I was, what we were trying to get out um, to, to make clear. I think there was just a, a bit of a misstatement or misunderstanding. And to be clear, the, the cash premium, I will confirm, um, is only payable on the funded amount. So what we're talking about here is $7.5 million. Um, and in fact, you know, I, I would do my math a little differently than Mr. Novick, because they may have two lawyers doing math. Um, since, the, since the ad hoc group has 72% of the of the debt and the debt is to be equitized, they have 72% of the value. So 72% of whatever we're talking about, they are paying themselves. So to say that they're being paid to backstop themselves, they're also paying to backstop themselves. So you really, I think, mathematically supposed to uh, supposed to cancel those two out. And what we're really talking about here is is 4.2 million dollars on 42 million dollars at the final stage and $2.1 million, I had to look down my notes for that, on $21 million, uh, on $21 million at this stage. So in any event, I think it's reasonable, but, but let me, let me, let me agree with Mr. Novick there, um, that it is only payable on the, on the interim amount. 
With respect to Mr. Novick's argument on the equity, Your Honor, I'm happy to talk to Your Honor about the equity conversion piece if Your Honor wants to hear it. But Mr. Novick can't rewrite the DIP agreement and the backstop agreement. There is a backstop agreement that's before this court. The debtor's business judgment is at question, and the debtor's business judgment, I think, strongly stands up for, and Mr. Zeman will talk about how that strongly stands up for the decision to set up the premium the way it was set up. And there's no ability to rewrite that and maintain the DIP that we have on hand. And with respect to Your Honor's gracious offer, I will accept it. You know, I was going to try to explain to Your Honor how they have, Mr. Novick has all rights to argue at the final DIP stage that we misallocated the DIP by requiring signing up of the RFA in his long argument. He didn't mention a single case law site or a single bankruptcy code provision that requires his client to be part of a DIP. But if he comes up with it between now and the final order stage, he could reserve the right to argue that we somehow allocated the DIP in an inappropriate way, and that was my proposal to Your Honor. But we will take Your Honor's proposal, and we propose to amend the RFA using the following words, because I don't want to be going back and forth. We would propose to amend the RFA to add a provision that says, notwithstanding anything to the contrary set forth herein, the rights of Mudrick Capital and any of its affiliated funds that become party to the RFA to object to any plan of reorganization solely on the ground that such plan fails to satisfy any of the requirements of Section 1129A of the Bankruptcy Code are hereby reserved. And I propose to put that into the RFA to address Your Honor's concern and have this hopefully be behind us. I was going to propose a third way, Your Honor, which is since I am confident that there is no bankruptcy code or other provision that requires anyone to take part in any DIP, that we simply just remove the pro rata provision to the DIP and have our clients just fund the DIP rather than backstopping it for the benefit of others or frontstopping it. I do want that to become a word, which is what they're doing here. I was going to propose that, but I was concerned that Your Honor would view me as flippant and get annoyed at me, so I won't propose that. We'll just take Your Honor up on his kind offer if that fully resolves the situation from Your Honor's perspective and we can proceed to getting this DIP approved and funded tomorrow so that we can get employees paid. And then, Your Honor, I don't know if you want to hear more on 506C. As you know, I have quite a lot to say about 506C, but it really boils down to it's the debtor's right, the debtor's made a business judgment, and we've carefully limited it to only cover the interim period because that's all we're talking about right now, and the debtors will have the right to make another decision at the final hearing, and we'll have a right to make a decision about whether there's a further DIP at the final hearing, and people can object to the debtor's business judgment to waive their right at the final hearing. And if there is some right that isn't the debtor's, it's not being prejudiced by this language. The language is very careful to say the debtors are waiving. So thank you, Your Honor. All right. Ms. Roglin? Your Honor, just very briefly on that point, we are not contesting that the right under 506C, which is being waived under this provision, does not belong to the debtors and to the estate. What we are saying is that it should not be waived today. There are lots of waivers of the debtor's right 
in the SIP agreement and the SIP order, including, for example, lien challenges. But those are not approved and they're subject to the, the debtor can waive them, but they are subject to the committee's challenge rights. And there's no such provision, no such additional time or the ability for a committee to come in and potentially challenge that waiver with respect to this 506C waiver that's being granted on an interim basis. That's all. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. Then with that, I've got before me the debtor's emergency motion to approve an interim financing. I do find that I have jurisdiction over the motion pursuant to 28 U.S.C. Section 1334. I do find the matter constitutes a court proceeding under 28 U.S.C. Section 157. Again, as an interim, I don't believe it's a final order. I think everybody would agree with that. But to the extent that there is some portion of it that could be viewed as final, I do find that I have the requisite constitutional authority to do that. I appreciate all of the spirited arguments and the evidentiary presentation. Mr. Novick, I very much appreciate your willingness to cross-examine witnesses. That's old school bankruptcy lawyer. It's how I grew up, and I very much appreciate the fact that you exhibited evidently a hidden skill because you were quite artful in the way that you did it. I also understand the motivations of the parties and what goes on. I tested a little bit. I could have poked and prodded a lot more, but I didn't. No one disagrees that this is extremely expensive money. Again, I have to trust that economic actors act in their own economic self-interest. I see no indication. No one's made the argument. I certainly don't have any evidence to suggest that there is anything that upsets that balance. To the extent that parties are saying the playing field is not level, the playing field is exactly level so long as you recognize that different players have different strengths. That doesn't make the playing field unequal at all. With the accommodation that Mr. Scheibel has made on behalf of his clients with the proposed amendment to the RSA, which I do accept, Mr. Novick, my view is that resolves all of the unknown issues. When I say unknown, the arguments that you made is that I should be able to understand what I'm signing up for. That argument stayed with me. I thought about it throughout the entire hearing, and I think that the preservation issue is one that doesn't give you too much leverage to be that person who's throwing bombs, as you put it, but it also allows your client to the extent that it is genuine in its efforts to understand the economics of a transaction. It gives them the opportunity to figure that out, and then to the extent that there is an objection to be made under 1129, I want to see it because, again, my only goal is to get it right and to protect the integrity of the code. I am confident that that is the right balance, and so I will overrule your objection with the representation by Mr. Scheibel of the proposed amendment. With respect to the landlord objection regarding 506C, the arguments of what's done under most circumstances never find a whole lot of 
of merit with me. I mean, you can't can't have a leader without someone willing to look at a situation and try to make the right call based upon the unique circumstances that exist. And so the, well, this is how it's always done argument, just it just it, it goes in one ear and out the other. Um, I do understand the concept of being able to use 506C as a leverage, and I think that the debtor has made a decision to trade that leverage away in exchange for what it's gotten in this proposed financing. Uh, and again, it's a unique financing. It, it's easy to understand, but it's also it's hard to quantify the level of risk that exists in this. It also, again, and I said it before and I'll say it again, the, landlord, the landlords have tremendous leverage. They simply have to be willing to put their name on a pleading and go forward. And to me, that's not asking too much. Uh, to have other people do it for you, the easy way out. It's much, it's much more appropriate that every situation involve risk. And if the land, if a particular landlord is willing to take advantage of the rights that the code provides, and there are many then I'll deal with those and I will make this commitment that I will deal with it on an emergency basis. Uh, because again, I have concerns that the budget's tight and I also think that the timeline, again, my view, maybe even maybe a bit too long. But I'm not trying to I'm not trying to get in the middle of the negotiations. I recognize that there are many issues that I don't understand, but I Again, I urge parties to try and keep their eye on the end game. Retail businesses are just hard, and you can look at the landscape of what has happened over the past three years and see what happens when retail businesses languish in a Chapter 11 case. This is not going to be one of those. This is going to be driven as quickly as it can possibly go to give parties an opportunity to negotiate to assert their rights, we're going, we're going to honor the code, at least as I read it, and, but we are going to go forward very quickly. So I am overruling the landlord's objection. I will, again, with the amendment uh, that is made by Mr. Scheibel, I will approve the dip on an interim basis. Let me ask, did we talk about a hearing for the final? And what were you what were you contemplating? Uh, the debtors and the workers were contemplating sometime in during the week of February thirteenth. February thirteenth. Okay, hold on just one second. I'll try to give you some options. The fourteenth at what? How about the fourteenth at two p.m. For the debtors, Your Honor. All right. Anyone have a conflict with the 14th at 2 p.m.? And I will accept as a very valid objection as my spouse is going to throw me out of the house if I don't do something fantastic for Valentine's Day. That's given the lives you all live, it's appropriate. All right. Then with that, fair enough. All right, so with that, what I'm, I've got the proposed order. Let me just make sure. The order that was filed with the motion includes all of the accommodations that were made, or it does not? No, Your Honor. There are, there are a number of accommodations we made to address uh, 
member of the landlord's concerns, and we will upload a revised form of order shortly reflecting this accommodation. All right, and if you would insert the hearing time in paragraph 39, if we're going to have the hearing on the 14th, anyone have an objection to a deadline of the 7th for objections? Mr. Ruff, that okay with you? Yes, it is, Your Honor. Thank, right, you. thank you. Mr. Novick, you okay with that? Yes. All right, thank, thank you. you. And landlords have any objection to the 7th as the objection deadline? All right, thank you. All right, thank you. So if you would if you would make those insertions into the order, circulate it, and then once you upload it, I would ask that you send Mr. Alonzo a text or an email, and that way he'll know that it's there and he'll get it to me and I'll get it back on the docket so that the parties can proceed forward. Will do, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you very much. All right. Your uh, Honor, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to uh, turn the podium over to my colleague, Chris Hoss, who will be presenting the next item for the agenda. All right. Thank you. No, I think it's just because there's a lot of paper rattling perhaps on your table or wherever the microphone is. It just it causes you to cut out. Any better now? Yes. Okay, I have the culprit. Yeah, terrific. All right. Okay, so uh, Grace has some hallways for the debtors. I'm going to run through the next few items on the agenda. And before I get into them, I wanted to let you know that we've been in communication with the U.S. Trustee's Office. And the, the remainder of the motions and the proposed orders for support uh, should incorporate their revision, obviously okay. subject to. So I move to item number four on the agenda, which is the vendor's motion. This was filed at docket 23. Under this motion, the debtors are seeking authority to pay certain of the superstition vendor claims. Um, broadly speaking, this includes five types of claims. Vendors that the debtors have determined are critical to the business, foreign claims, lien claimants, customs and regulatory claims, and five of the We've worked to tailor the relief under this motion to ensure that the debtors have access to inventory and raw materials that are necessary to manufacture and sell their party goods. And as the debtors enter Chapter 11, maintaining their vendor relationships are top of mind. This is particularly true given the time of year. Uh, as we've discussed today, the a significant amount of the debtor's business comes in Q4 as a result of Halloween and year-end sales. And the inventory and other materials necessary to sell those goods typically take nine to ten months in advance of the order. And so this is a critical time for the vendor for the for the debtor and any disruption to their trade relationships could severely impact their ability to operate and how they will affect. The debtors were very measured in their analysis 
and we are seeking authority to pay 12.65 million in December time for the interim period, which represents a small fraction of the debtor's outstanding We intend to require the vendors who will receive payments under this motion on the of pre-petition claims to agree to provide customary terms going forward and believe that this will need to preserve value um, in our business industry. So unless the court has any questions, we will request you. All right, thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? Mr. Ruff, you okay with this? We are, and I can confirm that the proposed order does incorporate our comments. All right, thank you. Again, anyone else wish to be heard? All right, I've had an opportunity to review the motion. Again, just given the nature of the business, this is a critical part of trying to stabilize the debtor and just being able to conduct business in as much of the ordinary course as is possible under the circumstances. I don't have any concerns whatsoever with the requested relief. I do have one question. Were you wanting to tie your final to the final cash collateral or the final dip hearing? What were you, or did you want a different date? All right, so we'll set the we'll set the final hearing for February the fourteenth, twenty twenty three, at two o'clock Central Time. Objection deadline, four o'clock uh, Central Time on February the seventh. I have interlineated that into the proposed order that is on the docket at. One, I have signed that and it is on its way to docketing. What's next? Next item I go to is item four on the agenda, which is uh, in similar vein, a motion to enforce the provisions of the automatic stay. Um, as we just discussed, that is businesses and the globe may turn back to parties around the world. This is really just an order seeking a restatement of applicable laws to make clear that there are certain protections under the bankruptcy code that the debtors want to uh, take, a, take advantage of and that seek to prevent vendors who are unfamiliar with the bankruptcy law and the bankruptcy code from taking action to take advantage of it. Um, doesn't seem to expand on any rights or protections available. All right, thank you. I've had an opportunity to review the motion, the proposed form of order, as well as the notice that's attached to the proposed form of order. I think it accurately restates applicable law. I do understand the benefits of having a piece of paper uh, signed by a judge and dealing with parties who aren't accustomed to U.S. bankruptcy law. Um, it makes good sense to me. I, again, I don't think it stretches anything. It just recites what the law already is. I think the notice is easy to read and understand. Mr. Ruff, U.S. Trustee, have any issues? No issues, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Then I have, hold on. I have signed the proposed order that was submitted at 15-1. No, hold on for a second. I put the docket reference on the notice, not the order. That was my fault. Sorry for the delay. Order has been signed, 
and it is off the document. Thank you. Um, moving on to item number six on the agenda, which is the tax management motion, which was filed at docket number 24. This, uh, this motion reflects standard request to allow the vendors to continue to use the police in cash management system that was in place prior to the system date. The cash management system is illustrated on the schematic. It can be found uh, exhibit seven on the submission list. The cash management system primarily consists of uh, 54 bank accounts, and the debtors rely on these accounts to receive transmit and transfer funds. The cash management system is complex, but it generally can be broken down into a few major categories. Um, collection accounts where cash and receipts are collected, concentration accounts where uh, receipts are collected and then disbursements are funded from, disbursement accounts, and then to company cash transfers that occur in the ordinary we're also seeking authority to pay for positions, bank, processing, and security fees, and corporate card obligations related to the tax management system. And like the other relief that we're seeking, maintaining the tax management system will enable, enable the debtors to continue operations as smoothly as possible and minimize disruptions to their business at this critical time. Uh, as I said, we shared this motion and incorporated comments to you. All right. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? All right. Again, I think the motion is one of practicality and of necessity to keep the business up and operating. There are so many difficulties that any debtor faces. Not being able to have access to its traditional banking system can be critical to the debtor. I understand that. Don't have any concerns at all with the relief that's been requested. Let me ask, did you and Mr. Ruff have a conversation about when your final wanted to be? Did you want to try and put it out beyond what will be an accelerated confirmation process? Did you want to tie it to the February date? What What were you thinking? Yeah, I, I think probably, well, I leave it in the debtor's hands. We can go as fast as they want to go, but we have a 45-day period for them to have an agreement with us that they're in compliance, so I would suggest perhaps a later date than the February date that was set for that other second date. Okay. How much later are you willing, are you comfortable with going? I don't to 60 days. Mr. Evelyn, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over the top of you. 60 days sounds fine to me, Your Honor. And I, I will note too that, um, you know, as with these orders, typically we can we can only stipulate and extend that time. So I, I think 60 days is fine. Right. We're working working in the right direction. Got it. Let me ask this. I'm just looking at the calendar. What about March the 20th? Did that work? Works for me, right? Does that work for the debtor? Sure. I have proposed 60 days, six though, not five though. Right. So I. I I got that. So today's the 18th. 60 days from today is roughly March the 20th, right? I definitely been up too long getting these motions on file. March 20th is good. Okay. Thank you. 
So let's see. And she's a lawyer, Your Honor. None of us can count, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. All right. How about March the 20th at 2 o'clock p.m. Central Time? Objections? Uh, Mr. Ruff, since you're the only one, realistically, you're the only one who will make this objection, and just to give you all time to work things out, can I propose the 16th to both of you? Would that work? Yeah, that works. That work for the debtors? Sure. All right. What time does this meeting? Uh, 2 o'clock Central. Thank you. All right, then with that... I have signed the order, and it is off the docket. All right, what's next? Um, I saw that the court had entered the order addressing the retention of full of claims agents. So I, I applaud you. I just, I just wanted to see if you would look. So good job there. And that's the end of uh, my list, but I'll see if I get a time to my colleague, Mr. Schrader. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Good evening, Your Honor. Good evening. Uh, Nick Sillis from Paul White on behalf of the debtors. The next item on the agenda is item number eight, the debtor's wages motion, pursuant to which the debtors are seeking to pay employee wages, salaries, other compensation, and reimbursable expenses and continue employee benefits programs. Employees are the lifeblood of the debtor's businesses. Of the debtor's 16,300 employees, approximately 14,000 are retail store employees. Uh, approximately 5,450 uh, 5, are full-time and 10,900 are part-time or seasonal employees. The debtors believe that the vast majority of their employees and staff rely on their compensation and benefits to pay daily living expenses. Accordingly, the debtors commit to honoring their obligations to employees is absolutely critical to stabilizing the debtors' businesses and maximizing the value of the enterprise. All of the preposition all the preposition wages and benefits amounts that are owed to employees are extremely subject to the priority wages cap, and the debtors are not seeking authority to make payments under bonus, retention, or incentive plans to any insider. In addition, we have uh, discussed with the United States trustee and incorporated their comments to order. So unless your court has additional questions, we would ask the proposed order to get through. Mr. Ruff, are you comfortable with the representations that have been made regarding limitations of, on the priority cap? We are, Your Honor. All right. Thank you. Then, again, I don't know how you were able to draw the most important motion that we hear today, um, but you did a nice job. You've obviously been reading. It is, my, in my view, the most important thing that we do today. It's without those 15,000 people, there are no there is no business. And you are right. Uh, I think most of those folks do depend on that paycheck, whether it's every week or every two weeks, whatever it might be, to be able to pay rent and take care of their families. Um, so I want uh, to the extent
extent that management, and I realize it's late, to the extent that management is no longer on the line, I want you to convey to them that I have very strong feelings about the employees of any debtor that I oversee, and I want to make sure that they know that they give me 110% of making this work. I intend to do everything I can possibly do to make sure that they get paid timely and in the amount that they are supposed to receive. Can I ask you to do that for me? Absolutely, Your Honor. All right, then with that, I have signed the order granting the motion. Again, for the record, it is the order that was attached to the motion at docket number 22. It's 22-1. It has been signed. It's off the document. Thank you very much, uh, Your Honor. The next item on the agenda is item number nine, the debtor's customer program motion, which is filed at docket number 21. The debtors administer certain customer programs, which customer programs and certain related programs to attract customers and maintain positive customer relationships. The customer programs include certain refund and exchange programs, retail sales promotions, a consumer products rebate program, a charitable fundraising program, and certain franchisee programs. As of the petition date, the aggregate amount of outstanding pre-petition obligations related to customer programs is approximately $14.5 million. That amount includes $8.4 million of outstanding credit issued to customers under the refund exchange program, $5.9 million in obligations to customers under the consumer product rebate program, and $200,000 in committed to unremitted donations under the debtor's charitable fundraising program. These debtors submit that the benefits to their businesses, their states, their creditors, and all other parties in interest are exceeds the cost of such payments. Uh, we work with the United States trustee to incorporate their comments to the proposed order and are not aware of any objections or further comments. Unless your honor has questions, uh, we would ask that the order be entered. All right, thank you. Anyone else wishes to be heard? All right, again, I, I think the debtor needs to do everything it can possibly do to maintain consumer confidence. Um, I don't have any concerns at all. It's part of ensuring a smooth transition, Mr. Ruff. I'll accept the representation that your comments have been included. Uh, and with that, I'll grant the motion. I've signed the order at 21-1, and it is off the document. Thank you, Your Honor. The next item on the agenda is item number 10, the debtor's insurance security bond motion, mm -hmm. which is filed at docket. Docket number 20, uh, pursuant to which the debtor seeks authority to continue their, charity, uh, their insurance program and charity bonds program and pay certain pre sufficient liabilities related thereto. The debtors have a customary insurance program, which includes policies that provide coverage for, among other things, losses related to property damage, operation of vehicles, crime, business interruption, cyber liability, DNO liability, flooding, and employee benefits liability. These insurance policies are listed on Exhibit A to the proposed order. In addition to the insurance program, the debtors have a limited number of surety bonds, which are listed on, on Exhibit B to the proposed order. Most, if not all, of the obligations insured by the surety bonds relate to customs regulations and applicable 
import duties, taxes, fines, and penalties. The debtors' current policies and charity bonds are in, often often required by law and regulation uh, that governs the debtors' commercial activities, and uh, the debtors believe that continuation or renewal of the programs are essential to preserving value of the debtors' businesses, properties, and estates. Um, we also shared the most with the United States trustee and did not receive uh, comments to this one. Um, unless the court has additional questions, we respectfully request. All right, thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? Again, maintaining insurance or proper insurance is not only part of being a responsible debtor, it's also part of being a responsible corporate citizen uh, without prejudice to any party, including the U.S. trustee, to assert that there is a deficiency in that coverage once uh, parties have had an opportunity to look at it if they wish. I don't have any concerns. Uh, Mr. Ruff, any reason I shouldn't approve the motion? No, Your Honor. We would want them to have insurance. All right. <laughs> and with that, I have signed the order, and it is on its way to docketing. Thank you, Your Honor. Next item on the agenda is item number 11, the debtor's NML motion, which can be found at docket, docket number 19. The motion seeks approval of customary notification and hearing procedures for certain transfers of and declarations of worthlessness with respect to common stock of party city holding and claims against the debtors. The debtors estimate that they had, as of the end of the 2022 tax, uh, tax year, Federal net operating loss carryovers in the amount of $45 million and federal disallowed business interest expense carry forward of approximately $209 million. Additionally, the debtors expect they may incur additional net operating loss carryovers and disallowed business interest expense carry forward through 2023. These tax attributes provide the potential for material future tax savings and other tax structuring possibilities in these chapter cases, which will inure to the benefit of all visitor stakeholders. We discussed the motion and the interim order. Uh, we at least shared it with the United States Trustee's office and prior prior filing and understand these do not have additional costs. Uh, so let me ask you again, because this is one of those things that gets distributed out there and can potentially influence the market one way or the other why why shouldn't we do this on a final basis because I mean all the motion does is says you got to come back here and so whether you're complaining about the process or you want relief from the process why why shouldn't we do this on a final basis your honor I believe we, we proposed uh, an interim and final order to address notice concern but uh, if the court is a lot to the uh, provision on the we, we certainly don't think it would be uh, a problem. Mr. Ruff? Your Honor, these are one of those motions um, that we don't have a problem going final on a first day. Obviously, people's rights to seek relief from the order are preserved, so, you know, knowing that, that's just not an issue. All right, thank you. Then, anyone else wish to be heard? And again, for the reasons that I put on the record, and I do think this is just one of those important things, you don't want an interim order being circulated uh, within the market because people then don't know, you know what happened if. 
so I do think that having the certainty out there, uh, again, anyone can come back and either seek relief from the order uh, or complain about the process uh, because all it does is direct everybody back to me before you do something that could cause harm. So I will grant the motion on a final basis. I've got the order. Could you just confirm for me the final order was attached as 19-2? Can you just... And can you confirm for me that everyone's happy with the final form or with the final order at 19-2? Uh, I, I, I would probably have to check. Uh, Why don't we do this? This is not something that you know, has to be done tonight. Why don't you just, since you didn't, maybe you knew this was coming, but since it is different than what you asked for, why don't you just press that eyes? Take a look at it. Just confirm to Mr. Alonzo tomorrow or tonight that it is the it is what you want to submit, and I will take it up just as soon as I know that you've done that. Okay. Appreciate that, Your Honor. Good motion, All right. What's next? Uh, thank you. With that, I will turn the podium over to my colleague Kevin Roche. Right. Thank you. Good evening, Your Honor. Good evening. Evan Alexander Roche, Old Lakes, Brisbane, Wharton, Garrison, on behalf of the debtors. I would like to begin with the taxes motion, which is at agenda number 12, and with final topic number 18. Okay. First, I'd like to begin by thanking the United States trustee and the ad hoc group, both of which provided helpful comments to be incorporated in the course of drafting this motion. Um, the debtors is a large enterprise. Incur, remit, withhold, and pay taxes, fees, and assessments in approximately uh, 50 worldwide jurisdictions. The debtors believe that pre-petition, about $26 million of taxes, fees, and so on, have accrued that will become due and owing during these Chapter 11 cases. Uh, accordingly, the debtors seek authority to make to pay those pre-petition taxes and a comfort order that we can pay post-petition taxes. We believe this authority is necessary for pre-petition taxes. Because if we don't do so, there are substantial risks to continued operation. So, for example, taxing authorities could interfere by extreme liens, seeking to lift the bank, uh, imposing interest on us, and so on. Unless your honor has any questions, I would respectfully request that you enter the order attached to the motion uh, at docket number 18. All right. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? All right. Again, I think this is in the context of an ordinary course motion, the failure to pay taxes not only causes the debtor to incur penalties as well as high rates of interest for the non-payment, it also can really affect the operations of some of the smaller taxing jurisdictions. I do think it's an appropriate request. I've had a chance to review the order. I don't have any concerns. I've signed the order at 18-2, and it is off the document. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I will next like to turn to the utilities motion, which is agenda number 13. We filed the utilities motion at docket number 17. We filed a revised form of order. So that motion is docket number 74. And a red line is when the revised form of order and the form of order attached to our initial filing was filed at docket number 75. Once again, I'd like to thank the United States Trustee and the ad hoc group both of the review and provided informal comments to the motion uh, during the drafting process. I would also like to thank the uh, landlord group represented by Paul Spar, who provided comments on short notice uh, earlier today, which we incorporated and which resulted 
in the revised form of order. Uh, as you might imagine, for retail and manufacturing business like ours, utilities are vital to the operation of our business. Uh, Party City has over 700 retail locations, in addition to manufacturing distribution locations. It has over 1,000 uh, utilities. If you look at the utilities exhibit, you'll see more than 1,000 entries, but there is some degree of double counting because we go by a drive spec. Uh, the debtors incur roughly $3.5 million a month in utilities expenses. Uh, we are not aware of any material defaults or tax due amounts of utilities, and we plan to continue to pay when due all post petition utility amounts. However, given uh, 366 of the code and the risks associated with uh, our utilities providing the day are not adequately assured of payment. We request that you are keenly utilities adequately assured based on our deposit into an adequate assurance account. Pay about $1.8 million, which is half our monthly utility spend, plus an additional $50,000 for any utilities we didn't identify. And B, to so order our adequate assurance procedures, which require utilities to formally reach out to us and negotiate on adequate assurance. Prior to, uh, prior to filing a motion or otherwise seeking to uh, seek payment on the basis that they are not adequately assured. Unless Your Honor has any questions, I would respectfully request that you want to be ordered as revised as topic number 74. All right, thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? Mr. Ruff, you okay with this? I am, yeah. Uh, thank you. All right, thank you. I've had an opportunity to review the motion as well as the revised form of order submitted at Docket 74, and I very much appreciate the red line. Again, I think the substance of the motion is actually pro-utility all the way. It gives not only a segregated fund, but also provides an expedited way to get back in front of the court should any party believe that additional relief is requested. Don't have any concerns at all. I do, uh, I do find that the proposed process provides adequate protection. I've signed the order at Docket 74, and it is... Off the docket. Thank you, Your Honor. I've seen your feedback on other attempted utilities orders. I'm glad to see that we're all aligned on this one. Uh, continuing forward, I'd like to go to the creditor matrix motion, which is at agenda 14, uh, docket index number 13. Here, the debtors are requesting authorization to file a consolidated creditor matrix. As you may be aware, Your Honor, there are 14 debtors in this case. Um, we are additionally requesting the authorization to file a top 30 list of unsecured creditors across all the debtors instead of on an individual basis. Additionally, we're requesting redaction of confidential information in our creditor matrix. This would be consistent with uh, 107C, redacting confidential information that we put individuals at risk. Uh, continuing on, we'd also like to not file a public equity holder list given the fact that we are a publicly widely held corporation. And instead, we would like to notify our equity holders by the time of an 8 day, which we plan to do so promptly. Finally, we would like to mail a single notice of commencement to the individuals on our creditor matrix rather than final multiple across every different case. Unless Your Honor has any questions, I respectfully request entry to the order. All right. Thank you. Anyone else wish to be heard? All right. Um, as I work my way through this, uh, and this is another one of those things that is extremely important to me, is just given the world in which we live today, a, we need to be extremely careful about protecting names, addresses of folks. It is amazing what you can find on the Internet with an address. And so I, I urge the debtors to err on the side of caution. Make sure you, you 
check and double check to make sure no slip-ups because once it's out there, it's out there. Uh, so, uh, but I don't have any concerns at all with respect to the request. Uh, I've looked at the uh, proposed form of the notice of commencement. It satisfies all of uh, the mandatory requirements. I, it also, just from a practical perspective, it's easy to read. I can't. I couldn't complain about it even if I wanted to. Um, Mr. Ruff, you okay with everything? I am, although I do doubt your last comment, Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Uh, then with that, I have signed the order that was submitted at 13-1, and it is off the docket. Thank you very much, Your Honor. This will take us to our last agenda item of the evening, if you're amenable. That would be the scheduled motion, which was filed with docket number 14. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, as you're aware, the typical requirement to file schedules is within 14 days. We're asking for a 45-day extension on the schedule period due to the complexity of these Chapter 11 cases and the size of the debtors' businesses, among the other uh, reasons enumerated in the motion. Similarly, on the 2015.3 reports, we are asking for an extension for the later of either 15 days after the 351 or March 3rd. Uh, unless Your Honor has any objections or questions, we would respectfully request all right, so I, I don't have any concerns at all about the requested extension. I know this is hard. I know it's complicated. Uh, but I want just the, the debtor to be mindful because I'm pushing you to accelerate the schedule. So we're kind of going from both ends, so just be sensitive to that. Um, I do want the information to be accurate, and if you can't get it done in the time frame, just tell everyone as soon as you know. I don't want placeholders. I don't want, you know, something that you know you're going to amend later. I want it as correct as it can be. But I also want you to be mindful that I want the process to be transparent. I want there to be information out there for those folks who care to take a look at it. All balanced against, I really want you, I really want you to work on the time schedule, okay? Thank you, Your Honor. Understood. We'll endeavor to do that. All right. Then with and with that, that I'm sorry. I'd like to see the podium. I'd like to see the podium to my colleague, Mr. Damon, to deliver some closing remarks. Oh, of course. Thank you. Nice job. Thank you. All right. Your Honor, I just wanted to, thank you. Uh, I wanted to thank you for your time and your patience and your thoughtfulness in addressing what were uh, some pretty thorny issues and some uh, complicated matters, particularly around the schedule. So we appreciate it. We appreciate your remarks. Certainly, management appreciates your remarks. By the way, they were on the phone. And they texted us back um, indicating that appreciation uh, in real time. Oh, good. So just want to uh, make sure we're all on the same page. You owe me two orders, correct? Revise, dip order, yeah. and then the final order for the NOL motion. Correct. Uh, the revised dip order is at the other parties who have to take a look at it, so we'll get to you shortly. Yeah, just. Just shoot Mr. Alonzo a text when it's there, and that way there won't be any delay, and I'll turn it around just as quickly as I can. also want you to know as you work through this, and I know you've got a whole host of things to deal with. You know, we heard, I realize I only heard you know, the part of the iceberg that's above the waterline today, and I know that, uh, that I haven't heard uh, the hard part yet. But again, if you need time, obviously I expect you to coordinate with the parties that are affected. I, you, you, you're, you know how to be a professional. That you want to 
treat people like you would like to be treated in this type of situation. But I'm telling you, I will make access because I do think that this should move along. Thank you, Your Honor. We appreciate that. All right. Then, again, I'm sorry I kept everyone so late. I'm not telling Isger that I was at a hearing until 730 because I complain about him doing that all the time. Uh, so we're, this adjourned at 530 Pacific time. Uh, with that, everyone, everyone have a good evening.